I love seeing the side of Will Smith uh, because, like I said, this is a guy that I grew connection with through uh, Men in Black, um, through Fresh Prince, uh, just through those early the Independence Day. You said it right there, early, early movies, early work. Um, the young Will Smith, seeing him being able to be the serious man that he was in this movie, the role that he took. I watched an interview with him before. He, ne- he, he never takes a role unless he feels like he, you know, unless he feels dragged to, unless he feels like there's a purpose. He doesn't take, he doesn't just take any role. He, he sits down and makes a decision. I believe that he had taken um, the sui- he had taken the Suicide Squad uh, one over the Independence Day role. He wasn't he wasn't in the second Independence Day because he said he felt that he was like all right I've already done Independence Day I've already done something like that why don't we try something different He's always looking to do something He's always looking to challenge himself And so seeing that seeing this movie um, was probably his was probably his most challengeable movie because right now it's like how can I make people because when what, what's so great about movies is and what you know which makes movies but what you know what makes a great movie is they're trying to sell to an audience as well and so what will is trying to do is he's trying to sell not fresh prince will to us he's trying to sell pursuit of happiness chris gardner will to us Welcome back to the Formative Films Project, a podcast series where we discuss how and why the movies we watch shape us, entertain us, and help tell the stories of our lives. I am your host, Braden Shaw. There was a palpable wave of disappointment as the 92nd Academy Awards nominations were announced on January 13th, 2020. As the Best Actor nominations were read, there was a notable name missing. Adam Sandler, for his work in Uncut Gems. No shade toward Joaquin, Leo, Adam, Jonathan, or Antonio, but it was an odd choice to leave him out. More than likely, this was an Eddie Murphy Norbit situation regarding Sandler's past work, especially those cringy Netflix comedies. But still, there was momentum for Sandler up until those nominations were announced. I share all that to say... There's an interesting prism through which we view comedians and or comedic actors. At times, it feels like they aren't viewed as quote-unquote real actors with range or that comedy is somehow easy when that's certainly not the case. And while some still can't make that transition, there are many notable examples of comedians giving astounding quote-unquote serious performances in dramas. And that's where we'll go next for this episode. So, let's get into it, starting with Robin Williams' Oscar-winning turn as Sean McGuire. My name is Spencer Butterfield, and my favorite movie is Goodwill Hunting. Spencer Butterfield was initially torn between two late 90s Matt Damon classics. Uh, I picked Goodwill Hunting probably because it's like, Rounders is a good film, but Goodwill Hunting kind of didn't, I don't want to be cliche and say like it changed me, but I just related to it so much that it's legitimately a film that I could watch every single day and never be, you know, unsatisfied with it. There's also a personal connection to this movie for Spencer during his current stage of life, if you will. Much like Will is weighing his options of leaving home, Boston in this case, Spencer left Kansas to go to school in Wisconsin. Do you feel do you feel an added connection to this movie considering that you went to college uh, fairly a, a good distance away? <laughs> I do. And that was the thing is like, I, again, I watched it. It was freshman year of college. 
And I related to it so heavily because I had gone out of state and I was studying, you know, a subject that was heavily mathematics and I wasn't very good at it, you know? And so like seeing Will struggle, I mean, he was a nat, he was a natural with the math, but seeing him struggle and go through this. And I was working a job as a maintenance guy at a golf course. So the first time I watched, it, I was like, dude, this is me. Like, I don't have a, I'm not from Boston. I don't have the haircut, but like, that's me right there. I know I'm working a shit job and have the opportunity to study math, but I don't know if I want to. And so I related to it really on a personal level, just because of that. And I think that the way the scene on the bench is shot where it's just Robin Williams's face in the frame. And like, you can sit there and if you've ever had that feeling of wanting to leave your hometown, but not being sure, like it's shot in a way that he's talking to you, you know, like, or it's over Matt Damon's shoulder where he's still looking at the camera. Like it was, it was classic. You can see it and like feel it on a personal level. Speaking of that personal level, I'm going to insert myself into the story here. I've known Spencer Butterfield since the second grade, and I feel like nearly every time we've watched a movie together, it's been kind of wild. Whether it was bewildering experiences watching The Room, or Rubber, or Battle Los Angeles in his basement, or catching every new movie featuring The Rock, or wasting money on colossal misfires like Green Lantern, Holmes and Watson, or the Mark Wahlberg Transformers movies in theaters, we've made some pretty interesting choices over the years. Still, they're all entertaining endeavors in their own ways. Anyway, here's Spencer. In general, I think that it has definitely evolved as I got older, right? I was a kid and I used to think movies were kind of a waste of time, but then, I don't know, somewhere along the way, like really appreciated like the storytelling aspect of it. So I used to hate, like, not hate, but I always said, oh God, they're so long. And it's kind of like reading a book, like it takes hours of your time. But then as you get older, you kind of figure out that you, you can learn a lot from them, I guess. Not to be too cliche, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've also found that uh, for 90s films and especially like late 90s films, there's like a certain nostalgia, even for like us that like we were born in like the late 90s technically, but we weren't, we weren't like alive kicking it really. Um, why, do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think there is that nostalgia for that 90s era? You know, that's a really good question. I think, I think it was because we were born like 98, right? So we didn't really get to experience that 90s, but like we can still claim it because we were born then. And I think watching films from that like gives you a little taste of it, right? Like I see Matt Damon as like a 21-year-old 98 and like I'm a 21-year-old now. So like I kind of think back and think with the same person, but we're really not. He's like 40 now. So I don't know. I think I gravitate towards like late 90s movies because it's like a part of my life for a very brief period of time that I kind of like want to know more about, I guess. From 1997, Goodwill Hunting, written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and directed by Gus Van Sant, follows 20-year-old prodigy Will Hunting, played by Damon, who instead of fulfilling his potential, works as a janitor at MIT. He hangs out with his friends, drinks at the local pub, and kind of just rolls through life. But once he solves a seemingly unsolvable math problem on a chalkboard at MIT, and is arrested for attacking a police officer in a fight with a former childhood bully, he's taken under the wing by Harvard grad-turned-MIT professor Gerald Lambeau, and sent to a therapist named Sean McGuire. Sean and Will have a prickly relationship at first, before eventually connecting over talks on a park bench, the Red Sox, and going to see about a girl. 
nominated for nine Oscars, including wins for Best Original Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor for the late Robin Williams. Goodwill Hunting is a coming of age story about bad relationship timing, appreciating Matt Damon's late 90s haircut, and how we could all use a pep talk from Robin Williams. Um, I, I want to kind of get into the performances here in the cast because I feel like the cast of this movie is really strong. Because um, obviously, you have Matt Damon playing the titular Will, um, Ben Affleck, Robin Williams, Dallin Skarsgård, Mindy Driver, Casey Affleck, Cole Hauser. Um, what performances from this movie uh, stick out to you? I think, I don't know, anyone that's ever seen the film knows that there are like probably three or four monologues that are like ingrained in like film history, right? And I think, again, I was thinking over it the past couple of days, and I think my favorite scene, like favorite monologue was Robin Williams' speech to Will when they're like sitting on that bench in the park. And that, again, like that was so gripping, but they're on a public park bench in the middle of South Boston having a conversation. Like there's no like effects to it. It's just like a close up of Robin Williams' face and he delivers these like line after line and it just like stabs you in the heart, you know? Like the, the budget wasn't insane. It's an actual bench you can go sit on in Boston. And it just made it feel real. You know, it felt like you were talking like to a wise uncle or like your own grandfather. Yeah, no, I um, put, put a pin in that because we're going to get back to that later. Okay, yes. um, but uh, I, I want to I touch on this because um, obviously in real life, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are these two bros from Boston. They know each other forever, best friends and stuff. And so I feel like the chemistry was pretty easy. Um, just to play in this movie. What did you, you think of the dynamic between the Chucky and the Will characters? I, again, I thought it was relatable. I thought it was like any, any relationship that two 19-year-old guys would have. Like any conversation you're having with like a really good friend could turn extremely deep, you know, on a dime. And I think that that was kind of nice because you could be out shooting the shit, having a beer at a pub. And then next thing you know, like your other homies pass out on the table, but you and some other guy could be having that heart to heart. And the level of respect that they had for each other as friends in the film was like that. Like there wasn't ever like any beef between them. And if there was, they immediately got rid of it because they're friends. Right, right. And then um, the other performance you mentioned earlier, Robin Williams in this movie. Um, I feel like there's this thing that some comedians are able to do. I know that Jim Carrey's done it. Robin's done it multiple times. Will Ferrell has even tried it a few times. Adam Sandler of these comedians kind of going for these quote unquote serious roles, these darker roles. Um, was it, was it odd at all to see Robin Williams do this or did you have any past experience with him doing that? I didn't think it was odd at all. And I think it was because like, personally, I've never even seen Mrs. Doubtfire or I saw Jumanji once maybe. So for me, this was like my like introductory film into Robin Williams. Like if I saw him, I saw this first. And if I saw him do Mrs. Doubtfire now, I would think it was strange, but not vice versa. Because just he killed it. He killed it so well. And because he was a comedian, like the parts where he did have dry humor, he killed those as well. Like it felt like it was kind of improv almost. Yeah, I'd also recommend uh, Dead Poet Society. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely that one. Um, but let's get into this a little bit because um, – I wanted to talk about Will and kind of d dive into his psyche a little bit because he, I feel like he is, as we all are at this age, um, very insecure. And he, is very, and he definitely um, feels like he's needing to kind of prove himself and being a, and kind of as a prick, really, this entire film. Yeah. Or not the entire film, but the majority of the film. So I had a few moments that I wanted to kind of go through here. Um, 
we need to talk about this slow mo fight scene in the park when when he- God, that was disgusting, bro. <laughs> well, first of all, what is your just initial gut reaction to watching that? My initial gut reaction to it was that was probably one of my least favorite scenes in the whole film. When like Casey Affleck, it's like a zoom in on his face, and he like oh, because like he there's a sound effect of him like socking the guy. Yeah, that one. The slow mo fight scene was was dumb but the motive behind it was fun like it was carmine scarpaglia like he used to kick the shit out of me in kindergarten like the logic there was like i've had beef with this guy because he was bullying me 12 years ago and because of that i gotta go kick him in this basketball court like horrible horribly done scene but like i, I love the logic behind it like ride or die like when casey had like didn't want to go out and uh chucky turned around he's like if you're not out there in two seconds it's gonna be your ass i was like hell yeah I feel like that also kind of just helped establish the dynamic between those four too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, of course, they go to this Harvard bar where Chucky's like, Oh, it's a Harvard bar. I thought there'd be equations and shit on the walls. <laughs> um, but then there's the classic, you mentioned monologues are a huge part of this movie. And I totally agree, but there's a monologue that will gives about yeah. the market economies and the Southern colonies <laughs> to this yes. ad basically. I mean, I mean, what, what, what was your takeaway from that scene? It was classic because, again, like that conversation that he has is the same one that all of us have like in the shower, you know, when we're thinking about like making up like scenarios in our head and like with one like like fury of words, you can knock some guy on his ass and like make him look like a fool. Like that's what he did. And so like to see it actually unfold and it was kind of, you know, movie magic kind of cliche, but to see it unfold in like in a bar setting something real. And he, he like totally knocked the wind out of him. And then at the end, like resorted back to fisticuffs. And he's like, but if you got a problem, we can take it outside. And the guy was like, no, no, no we're cool. It was classic. <laughs> we're cool. We're cool. How do you like them apples? But um... <laughs> It was classic when he smacked it on the window. Love that. <laughs> um, and then uh, he, he, of course, kind of later goes and does his own self-defense in court and, and references the free property rights of horse and carriage in like the yeah. 1700s and and he just has a lot of moments like that where he's just pulling, basically pulling stuff out of his ass, essentially. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, it's kind of compounded in this like almost montage of these different therapists that he goes to see. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought it was funny how he starts singing Afternoon Delight, um, which I hadn't realized it before, but this is seven years before Anchorman. And yeah. I feel like that song is almost associated with Anchorman more. Um, I, was, was that therapy montage kind of the epitome of just this like kind of almost brat that he, yeah. that Will kind of is? Yeah. And I, it's funny you mentioned that because I had only known that song Afternoon Delight from Anchorman. So when I saw it and I was like, I, I guess I didn't realize it was a real hit single or whatever. But um, to be honest, the therapy scenes are my least favorite scenes like in the whole movie. I just think that especially the one where he's like laying on the bed and he's like conjuring up this fake like trauma that he has. I, I just don't like, that's my least favorite scene in the whole movie. I just think it takes too long, but I think it's necessary to show like his feelings towards like, I wouldn't say society, but just like people in power, people like that have people in academia, I guess I would say, you know, who are these shrinks with their degrees that come question me and tell me what's wrong with them. Right. And, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that because he also kind of uh, one of one of Will's biggest things is him kind of thumbing his nose at authority and whether it's sending Chucky to the interview with a retainer, yeah. <laughs> that stuff, or, 
uh, or like basically making fun of Sean's dead wife, you know, with the painting. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm curious, how do you feel like uh, this, as we're, as we're kind of setting up and getting to know this Will character, how, how do you feel like it kind of shows his, I guess, lack of respect for authority and kind of that, well, that youthful angst, if you will? <laughs> I think it's interesting because thinking back on it now, he, he thumbs his nose at authority to every authoritative figure in the film. And I think he does it kind of in in a way to see if they would do it back, right? Kind of like a respect thing. And the only person that did it back was Robin Williams' character when he choked him out on the window. And that was enough to like earn Will's respect to come back. And he did that to every other shrink that he had and they all rolled over on him. And it was like, okay, this guy obviously can't talk to me because he can't, you know, he can't give it back. Like I can dish it out. And I think that was, it was important to establish that as well, but it was, I think it was almost more important to establish kind of his, his feeling towards people in power, I guess, just like his brat kid. But what really drives this film are the relationships. For Will, that starts with figuring out his relationship with Skylar, played by Minnie Driver, who's about to graduate from Harvard before going to medical school out at Stanford. This girl that he meets, um, it's going off pretty well. You know, they go to that costume shop, they have, go to the dog race, tell us mm -hmm. about his fictional 12 brothers or whatever uh, in that cafe scene where she where he basically sit, kind of pl plays through his mind of how it's like learning the piano or how basically yeah. yeah. but at the end of the day this relationship is kind of just comes down to bad timing and she's like i've been here for four years but why did i just meet you now uh, and they have that big fight i mean she's going off to stanford to medical school yeah. how, what did you think of just the dynamics of that relationship and how i mean I feel like you and I, you and I kind of go through this too in real life, just like how sometimes just the timing's not right. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting because he almost did the same thing with Skylar. And I love how they, like when he screams her name in the film, like Skylar is the best name to scream with a, like a Bostonian accent, like a big Skylar, like no R at all. But I think he did the same thing to her that he did like to authoritative figures where he, he like assumes that like her parents like paying for all this schooling and he kind of thumbs his nose at her, but then she reveals like she has this traumatic experience as well. And then he, okay, he respects her more as a result of that. But I think that, what was the question again? Sorry about their relationship. Oh, no, I was just, yeah, just about the relationship and how it was just, it just came out of bad timing. And also on top of that, it's really the biggest example of Will's fear of abandonment because he 100%. leaves her before she can leave him. hundred percent. And that, and again, that's something that like kids our age can relate to, like that feeling of like putting yourself out there 100% and the other person can either like take it or like totally reject you. And that there's a quote from Robin Williams that always kills me that like his wife had that ability to just like level him with her eyes. And that's crazy. Like, like to put yourself out there 100% and be vulnerable is a legitimate fear that people have. And that's why it's so realistic. Like we wasn't out fighting you know, robots from a different galaxy. Like he was like talking to a girl he liked, but didn't want to get hurt. And like, who hasn't done that, you know? Right, right. No, I def definitely feel that one. Um, but then the other relationship that of course we go through this movie is the Will and Sean relationship, the the Damon, uh, Robin Williams relationship. Obviously very rocky start as we imagine, you know, kind of establishing boundaries, kind of feeling each other out, playing the silent game there for a second. Um, but, but you mentioned... Um, the scene on the 
on the bench in the park that has been done. I remember back at Mill Valley, there were kids that would always do that as their monologue for drama class and stuff. Um, But, but obviously it's a killer monologue and and it holds up to this day, obviously, but there's a real idea that I kind of wanted your thoughts on that, that Robin Williams kind of picks on is that throughout this whole movie, Will, it, Will can recite, I mean, Nietzsche, Shakespeare, Tess, I mean, all these, all these philosophers, all these thinkers basically get anything out of a book. Yeah. But Sean's monologue really is pointing to him and said, you, I mean, you are one of the smartest kids, smartest guys I know, and you're a prodigy, but your perception and your lack, and your basically unoriginality, which is what he called out the guy at the Harvard bar for, yeah. uh, is, I mean, he's a fraud, basically. I mean, I mean, what yeah. do you think of just that idea of his, of Will kind of hiding behind this front and also just not having that original thought. Yeah. That's again, I think it's like a, it's like a coming of age thing, right? Like everybody at that age, like that prime, like 18, 19, 20 year old has something about them that they put up to show society to hide who they really are. And the guy at the Harvard bar was him going to Harvard and will, it was like him being super smart because everybody in his life around him was an idiot. You know, and so if some guy at his construction site told him off, like he knew either a he could beat him up or he could he was so much smarter than him that he could just outsmart him in any situation. And Robin Williams, I think, with that classic bench scene, just like was the first one to call it out for what it is. And I think really because I never noticed it until recently that all right, it's pretty obvious when you think about it, that Robin Williams and Will are essentially the same person, just on different timelines. Right. Like they both grew up in Southie and they both have a mutual respect for each other. And for Will to like see himself in Sean's form, just like older and then have Sean basically like call his ass out right there. Like just him to his core. It's classic. Right. And um, another classic scene, I feel like, is the story of um, Robin Williams telling about how he met his wife. You know, um, he is there for the, uh, the Red Sox game. Carlton Fisk uh, hit the home run in 1975. You know, I got to see about a girl. Um, do you think, I mean, there's really only one answer to this, but I'm just curious. Do you think he made the right choice not going to that game? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that the example was so, was so perfect because like the whole message behind it was like, if you meet somebody perfect, the timing isn't always going to be perfect as well. And there was no better example than that, than like the Boston World Series for Will to understand. You know, he could have said, oh, I had a dissertation to give at the at the university, but I had to skip it because I met her. And he would have been like, okay, that's cool. But like to be like, what was it? Game six or seven of the World Series and miss it to see about a girl you met at the bar. Like that was mind blowing to anyone of that age, especially some kid from Boston. And that really hit home the message of like, look, if you really think she's the one, like the timing isn't going to be perfect. You got to give something up to, to go see her. Right. Right. And, and of course he obviously steals that line at the end when he ends up going to actually see about a girl. Um, but uh, right before we kind of jump off the Will and Sean relationship, I mean, of course they're kind of still feeling each other out. They talk, they have that, that's uh, kind of dialogue about honorable jobs, you know, is laying mm-hmm. brick honorable. You're building somebody's house, fixing somebody's car. And he kind of sees through Will's bullshit. I feel like that's kind of a theme throughout this movie, but at the end, when he's looking at Will's file, and I think you know where I'm going with this, is the pro- one of the more famous moments in this movie is that he's just staring at him and he says, it's not your fault. And he just repeats it and repeats it and repeats it. I mean, I mean, what 
what, what do you what do you think of that scene and just the how it, it's just it's just very level-headed and just it's the same line repeated over and over but it's almost like the it just keeps building and building exactly and and again it just goes back to the simplicity of it like it, they're in an office and having a conversation and he's saying the same line over and over and you can see will's reaction is initial reaction is the one that he gives to everybody where it's like oh yeah i get it and like every time he says it it like chips away at a layer more and more of will and at the end he finally like gets down deep to him and he just cries and he has this reaction that he's probably never had talking about this you know his traumatic experiences with anybody and so that was that was it to me is you don't when you watch it for the first time he repeats it over and over and you kind of don't necessarily grasp what's going on and you see will's reaction change every time he gets asked or gets told the same statement and to see that like transition he basically grows up right there in that, like six seconds and that yeah that was a classic scene i i always tear up through that one that's also when we see will at a crossroads deciding between staying in his current spot in boston or finally going out to achieve his potential and that's a theme in the film for other characters as well such as the contentious relationship between Lambo and Sean. And they're kind of like dueling forces, right? Like Lambo mm-hmm. kind of wants to control Will, and then Sean's like, we need to make sure he lives his own life. How do, how do you feel like this, kind, this film kind of captures that dynamic of, uh, you know, living up to your potential and really just kind of living your own life? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And it's probably another ask, reason why I related to the movie so much is because like, we weren't like, we didn't grow up in South Boston. Like we grew up in a nice high school and we had teachers that supported us and everything. And when I first watched this movie, it was during that period where like, you're going from high school to college and the expectation for you is so high and everybody has an idea of what they think that you should do. And your idea of what you really want to do might be, you know, 180 of that. And so like wrestling with this idea of, of you're really good at this, so you should do it, but well, I don't enjoy it. Okay, well, you have to find this mix of something you enjoy and something you're good at. And I think, you know, obviously, Jared Lambeau and Sean were, you know, devil angel on the shoulder, telling you, pulling him in opposite directions, but the mix of them kind of propelled him to do the right thing, I guess. Right. And then, and then I feel like kind of the final push comes, um, you know, that scene near the end where him and him and Chucky are at the, um, I guess, working construction or whatever. And Chucky gives him that speech, you know, the best part of his day is the 10 seconds between walking from his car to his door, hoping that he's not there, no goodbye, just gone. He says, it would be an insult to us if you're still around here in 20 years. Um, how does this film, it, it's a similar question, but how does this film kind of capture uh, really doing it? Because, you know, I feel like you mentioned how being pulled apart, like maybe doing what you want to do versus what you're actually supposed to do, but also that just the fear attached to that, right? Because I feel like a lot of it with Will, there's a lot of fear he knows what he's supposed to do. He knows what he's great at, but he, there's a, there's a bit of a fear to kind of take that final step. Yeah. And I think really the push it had to be Chucky to give him that speech because he put it in a different perspective. Like Will, he was telling him, Oh, Will, you got to go do this, got to do this. And Will's initial reaction was the one he gave to everybody, which was, no, I'll be fine. Like personally, I'll be fine. If I don't do it, I won't disappoint myself. And Chucky turned that on his head and he said, no, no, if you don't do it, like you're going to piss me off. And I'm your best friend. And so to see that, how, Will's reaction would hurt the people that he loved, you know, his choice would hurt the people that he loved that pushed him over the edge to be like, okay, staying here would be a stupid mistake for me. Spencer says that Will's relatable dilemma is a key selling point for anybody to watch Goodwill hunting for the first time. If you've ever had that feeling that you just 
have to leave your hometown, then this is your movie, right? Because that's that's him the whole time. It's like, oh, he's in Boston, but he's comfortable there. And like Robin Williams is the guy to say, hey, take the risk. You know, if it's not there, you can always come back. And so that would be my pitch. Like if you've ever had that feeling like, I want to get out, but I don't know if I could do it. Like watch it and Robin Williams will talk to you and, and encourage you to get out of your hometown. Next up, the story of a relationship that's just not meant to be. My name is Trey Brillhart, and my favorite movie is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Trey Brillhart says this movie has been a go-to for him since early high school. I'm sure you get the question a lot, like, what's your favorite movie? You get that question all the time. This is one that I've always, like, ever since, I think I watched it for the first time uh, freshman year of high school. And ever since then, that's always been, what's your favorite movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? It just, again, the way that he is able to tackle, like, these issues of love and ro- uh, romantic relationships and, like, the characters feel so real. And even past that, just the way that he tells the stories, it tells the story of this movie. Like, it's a non-linear, non-linear movie. Um, and it opens up with, like, what we think is, like, a, a regular meet-cute. But once you finish the movie, uh, you realize that's the uh, right after he's had her erased. So just that aspect of it. And, like, I honestly, uh, talking to my girlfriend earlier about this, so, like, this is a movie that I'd say is like a perfect movie. Like there's, I don't have a problem. I don't, I can't think of a single issue that I have with this movie. Just, I don't know. I love everything about it. And just by talking with Trey, you can tell he has a deep admiration for Eternal Sunshine scribe Charlie Kaufman and a love for movies as a whole. They always have uh, since I was young. Movies have always been something that I really connected with. I've never, I was never really a athletic, never a big sports guy. So movies was always kind of thing. My dad, uh, my dad is what got me into movies. We would always go to the theater together. I started off with like big and like superhero movies. Like I see you got Spider-Man back there, huge Spider-Man guy, stuff like that. Star Wars are the classic ones. Um, So that's what initially spurned, like spawned my love of movies. I'd say Um, I'm uh, I'm a film student right now. So that's kind of like, my goal in life eventually is to make movies of my own. So I'd say I have a pretty, pretty deep love and connection to uh, movies. From 2004, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Michelle Gondry, follows hopeless romantic Joel Barish, played by Jim Carrey, and his girlfriend Clementine Krachinski, played by Kate Winslet. After Joel skips work one day, he meets Clem on a train, and after a bit of an awkward start, the two eventually hit it off. Yet, even after the initial high, there's something a bit off, and the relationship turns sour, especially after they break up and Clem decides to get Joel erased from her memory. After initial confusion, Joel decides to do the same. But as he watches his memories be erased in real time, his love for Clem is rekindled, even if it may already be too late. The film was nominated for two Oscars, including a win for Best Original Screenplay. Part sci-fi, part romantic tragedy, and notably featuring an impressive dramatic turn from Jim Carrey, this is a story about love, loss, and how deeply we can attach ourselves to the highlights of a relationship, even if it was never meant to be. Um, yeah, you mentioned earlier, you saw it, um, you saw it a few years back, um, but uh, I know... Um, what what was what were the kind of the feelings watching this movie for the first time and kind of watching this story unfold? 
I think Eternal Sunshine is a movie that definitely like rewards multiple viewings. Mm-hmm. So like in that first like initial viewing, you kind of you may not like. I know I didn't pick up like on and everything that was going on and like yes for instance like the ending like there's like a couple different ways you can interpret it you can either say oh these people are just so in love with each other you're just so destined to be with each other like no amount of brain racing whatever can prevent them or I guess uh, or you could look at it um in a way which I think I look at it more towards now is that like we're like humans are like bound to make the same mistakes over and over again no matter if it's good for us or not, like these two characters, whether regardless if they're good for each other or not, they keep coming back to each other or they will keep coming back to each other. So yeah, I guess just the fact that you can get multiple things that you can see, you can notice something new every time you'd watch it, I guess, is what I, how I describe this movie. Um, the first time you see it, you can focus like on either like the story or the characters and then like the score. And then, and of course, like the first time you watch it, you're like, oh, what's going on? Cause it's like, typical Charlie Kaufman kind of like craziness but just the fact that the that you it's a movie that I can keep watching over and over again and I never get tired of it I keep learn I can learn something new from it every time I can I can get the same emotions of wonder or like oh wow or um this is beautiful or like just just like the um I guess different array of emotions it can produce in you I guess right right and and I feel like that's kind of been a calling card of Charlie Kaufman's work um, for a lot of it. I mean, whether it's his work with Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry, even just his solo yeah, efforts yeah. with Synecdoche, yeah. and I'm thinking of anything. What do you think about Charlie Kaufman uh, projects that kind of, like you said, reward multiple viewings, kind of for, almost force you to kind of go back and kind of dig back into yeah. it? That's something I really like when movies can do that whenever they can, when you can watch it over and over again and you can, still be just as enthralled or like just like learn new things as much as the first time you watched it i think that's something really special and the way he does it like because his movies are his movies are pretty like complex i would say um i don't always understand them sometimes i always have to oh what what does other people think of this what does this mean and the fact that he can do that but he, he can make something like that but it's not confusing or like crazy enough to the point where i'm turned off from watching it or like where it's not like he's not like full like David Lynch or anything like he's he's got like it's coherent he like it's a coherent story it's linear or I guess non-linear storytelling for Eternal Sunshine but um but yeah just that that aspect of it I really I really like that a lot um and then kind of with this movie um there's this thing of um, these of comedians kind of going for these more dark or serious roles. I mean, we've seen it with Adam Sandler. We've seen it with Robin Williams, Jim Carrey here, Will Ferrell, mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy. I mean, and the, the list goes on. Um, what, do, what do you think of comedians kind of tackling these more serious roles? And was it weird at all to see, um, say, Ace Ventura in this movie? <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we could talk about this because I was actually thinking – just like making a uh, whenever you first reach out, I was like thinking of what movies I wanted to like going through my list of favorite movies. And so Eternal Sunshine is my first favorite movie. Punch Drunk Love is my second favorite movie. And then Uncut Gems is on there. Just thinking, going through and I'm, and I've seen like, for some reason, I'm always drawn to comedic actors doing, doing these serious performances. They, they always say that like comedy and drama are like super, super close together. 
and like I can't off the top of my head, I can't think of a single performance from a comedian in a serious movie that I like. Oh, that's a terrible perform performance. Like, like uh, Adam Sandler he was snubbed last year for uh, Uncut Gems. He totally should have been nominated. Like that was the best performance I saw that whole year. Like I don't know. There's something that's super attractive about comedians. Like I think it maybe goes back to the whole like like that sad the sad clown thing. Like I don't know. There's something about it that I'm really attracted to and they're even like um another a recent favorite melissa mccarthy and uh, i'm uh, uh can you forget can you ever forgive me she was fantastic in that and i'm not a huge melissa mccarthy comedy fan but like she blew me away in that movie so i don't know there's something about comedians they always just bring their a-game to these dramas so let, let, let's kind of dig in here a little bit um, to the the story and the plot of, um, of, of I almost said I'm thinking of anything, of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You mentioned earlier that that kind of uh, the timeline, and I wanted to just kind of briefly address that, because this story is, I mean, it's kind of a big circle, right? I mean, we kind of start at the end and we kind of end mm-hmm, yeah. back there. What did you think of that yeah, like a loop. Kind of to kind of do that loop and also just kind of tell this a little out of order? Again, I think you go back to like maybe the first first time somebody watches it, you like, oh, what's going on? Like, might some could say like, oh, because it does like the way it is a loop because it starts with him like after the after the erasing, and then it kind of starts off with uh, even as they're going erase as they're going through the relationship, they start with all of the the negative stuff. That's what because it, it's like at the forefront of his mind. That's what he's thinking, and then as you go. And as you, as the movie progresses, you see the more like the more tender, more like uh, intimate sides, the more vulnerable, like that scene when that like kind of like pillow talk scene, whenever uh, Clementine's talking about um, the doll, her doll from childhood, when she was talking about how she used to think she was ugly. It's like just all of that, like the intimacy. And then which eventually leads to him, like realizing he doesn't want to erase, erase her from his memory. I think the nonlinear aspect of it works really well for that because like if it was like just a normal linear story like like it could i'm not gonna say it's not gonna be as power it wouldn't be as moving because i don't know that for a fact but i think you do i think you would definitely lose something if you if you don't have that non-linear and it also adds it also like um like story-wise with as he's trying to escape them erasing it kind of works because they're going trying to not they're trying to move all over the place so that just leads leads into it being nonlinear and i can't really i can't think of this movie it being made any other way honestly and that also kind of plays in um to this attention to detail that i i mean charlie kaufman that, that it's kind of his whole thing of he basically with mm-hmm. all of his scripts he's basically looking at a different part of the mind right he's kind of I yeah. mean, this place it's memory um i mean synecdoche new york it's more existential of course i mean it, i'm thinking of many things it's literally all a fabrication to an extent um but yeah. with this i mean there, there's a lot of attention to, de- to detail right i mean of course we, we get that great um line near the beginning you know where joel says why do i fall in love with every woman i see who shows me the least bit of attention yeah. you have his sketches his sketchbook you know the hair colors with the snappy names yellow fever blue ruin green revolution I mean, there, there's a lot of moments there that Charlie Kaufman, you know, he just kind of flourishes. Um, what do you think of just the attention to detail and all the little, um, those neat, nice, nice little neat moments that Charlie Kaufman kind of peppers throughout this? Yeah, he's a, he's a expert at that. He's fantastic. For instance, even like going back to um, your name in the, uh, the hair dyes, like I'm, I'm sure you could like write a whole, do a whole essay on like the different meanings of like 
the what the hair dye means in each scene like i'm not smart enough to do that right now but like the way he the way he like i don't know i think it just adds to the whole like realism the whole like makes you more dr- connected and more like i guess more more real more human like even the details of um the lacuna being such just like a regular looking dentist doctor's office even though it's uh, in there like really clunky like machines they used to erase it like and and like all the character work like i don't know he's yeah he's an expert he's phenomenal at that i can't i can't even wrap my head around being that smart to be able to like oh just to write the script like that and to know it so well to be able to fill it out with such detail it just i feel like it makes it more more believable more more realistic lets you audiences like feel it more the fact that there's so much detail and that you can again you can watch it so many different times and see new things new pick up new things that you didn't notice before it's just incredible the level of detail extends to every relationship in the film the disgruntled marriage between joel's friends carrie and rob the weird love triangle of sorts between mary stan and howard and the even weirder dynamic between clem and patrick but most importantly of course, is the relationship between Clem and Joel. You know, you have Clem who's kind of extroverted, impulsive. Joel is more introverted, kind of an overthinker. And, and I feel like that's kind of one of the biggest uh, problems, if you will, with this relationship. They don't trust each other. They're not on the same wavelength. How do you feel like this movie, whether it's um, through its story structure or just kind of looking back at the memories, how do you feel like it explores kind of those, those elements of trust? I would say with that one, um, so I could even be applied to uh, Kristen Dunst's character and Tom Wilkinson, like, cause she's, she trusts him. She thinks like he's the greatest person in the world. And then fast forward to the ending, you realize, Oh, you can't really trust him because they have this past. And I think that, so like with the uh, Clem and Joel, that whole like first, like meet you on the train, you're like, Joel's very like, like he said, he's very like introverted. He's like, very like, kind of like not sure about her. And she's like, kind of very quirky and like keeps like keeps coming back to she's like she, she keeps starting a conversation and then guys that keeps coming because and that goes back to i'd say that can even go back to like the details because re-watching it you're like oh they 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 kind of recognize each other they they feel something towards each other there's some relationship there but they don't know what it is and so when you watch the the movie you watch see like their relationship see like the first couple of scenes where they're racing, like the, how the relationship's breaking down, there's like the lack of trust. They don't like the, uh, that whole scene wherever they're fighting after she wrecks his car and she's out till 3 a.m. And that whole argument where she's like, you're wondering if I have gone out and slept with somebody. And he's like, no, I expected you to because they, they don't trust each other anymore. So, and, and then as it goes, as it goes further, we see the more like tender aspects of their relationship and they're being more vulnerable with each other. They kind of, we see them like trust each other, like he uh, trust each other and like open up, tell, talk about like their fears and their vulnerabilities. And even when they're like uh, running away from um, the erasing stuff, uh, she's like, take me somewhere deep in your side, your memory or whatever she says. And he takes her to like, uh, to that scene where every like uh, his childhood and he's killing the bird. And then even to whenever he's like a teenager and he's masturbating for the first time, you see these like intimate, like intimate details that you would only really share with somebody that you're really close to, that you really trust. 
And I think that also adds to the relationship just feeling real, just feeling like these are real people that they actually had history together. They actually have a relationship. Right, right. And then and a lot of that also, of course, as Joel is getting his memory wiped, he kind of has this sense of regret kind of come over him. Of course, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the running away to try to different parts of his mind to kind of escape it. Um, This movie, I feel like deals a lot with, which is one of the, I think, appealing aspects of it is how it deals with um, grief and regret and loss. Because both Clem, of course, Clem gets it wiped before Joel does. Um, but, uh, they, are both feeling that sense of loss. Um, even if the Clem in Joel's mind is kind of more of a projection, but still mm-hmm. they both feel that kind of loss. And that this obviously is a very melancholic movie. There's a lot of deep muted colors, um, deep blues in this, in this movie. I mean, the title card I noticed, I noted comes in almost 20 minutes into this movie and it's just Joel just yeah. sobbing on this rainy night. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you listen feel- to the sad song? Exactly. How do you feel? I think it's a Beck song or something like that playing over. Uh, um, how do you feel like this movie kind of addresses that, reg- that regret, that grief that these characters are going through? First of all, uh, address that, the, the title coming in like 20 minutes and like the first time I saw that movie that blew my mind. I was like, Whoa, you can do that. But um, so I was like listening to, I watched the movie again with a commentary from Charlie Kaufman, and Michelle Gondry, and then just read more on it. Like, they uh michelle gondry did not let jim carrey like improvise at all whereas like where he whereas he let kate winslet do it and they uh they described the performances like kate winslet's doing i wrote it down um she's doing inside out acting whereas jim carrey's doing it outside in acting so like normally jim carrey's like that the kind of the goofy guy is doing impressions or whatever but in this movie flips it he's like wearing his heart on his sleeve he's very sad really introverted person and Clem's the one she she whenever they're together she brings out his goofy inner side so just the way that both of Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet the way that they they're both grieving like we said they're both they both know there's something missing and whenever they meet each other they they're like oh they're drawn to each other because they know something's missing even though they don't know quite what that wound is but again both just the way that both of these actors interpret grief and through their different performances is really something incredible like in that first scene again taken out of context you wouldn't think that kate winslet's you wouldn't think clem is like she's grieving you wouldn't think that she's going through something but we know that she's like her through her uh like she's going through that relationship with elijah wood and he's kind of it's kind of manipulating or using all the joel stuff so just the way she's internalizing that and expressing that around her is i don't know it's a really incredible and really really unique uh way of viewing grief i guess since like you have like the typical joel or kind of kind of melancholy but then you have kate wins uh clem and she she's the same same feeling the same feelings but expressing them in different ways and I i think that's really really well done really something that i really love about the movie um and then of course probably the biggest uh, maybe more most obvious 
aspect of this movie is the memory, right? And how they play with memory. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, of course, we are even introduced to the different ways of meeting Clem. I mean, initially, as you mentioned earlier, it seems like he meets her on the train. That's kind of how this starts, but it's actually not how it starts. He meets her at that party at the beach. Mm -hmm. And they even, I think Kristen Dunst's character, Mary, says multiple times, you know, bless her to the forgetful because, you know, sometimes we don't want to remember certain things. So I wanted to go through a, different, a few different aspects of this. First of all, the brain map and how, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I thought it was really interesting um, how they said, you know, um, all right, you need to gather up all the stuff, all the different objects in your house or apartment or wherever that remind you of her. And you need to take that, put it in a trash bag and we'll, we'll kind of dispose of it for you. How did you feel? Cause I feel like that's something that I hadn't, I haven't really seen too often of just like how in other words, romantic relationships, friend, uh, familiar relationships, any sort of relationship, there's certain things you share together um, that are associated with objects or experiences or whatever. And then 21st century nowadays, we have social media and you have like, so what's the first thing you do whenever like you break up with your significant other, you go and delete all the pictures or you change your status. So thinking about that and the way um, they have the like, oh, gather all your things that have any memories. Cause of course, like after she's gone and you wake up and you have all these things, you have no memory of her. You're like, oh, was that, but um, even in like uh, a, a not this last watch, but uh, one of my rewatches, I noticed that like whenever on the train, she mentions no jokes about my name. He's like, oh, I don't even know any jokes about your name. But at the beach scene, she, uh, she's like, no jokes about my name. He immediately like, oh, Huckleberry Hound. So, so even not just like physical, like physical things you have or like, like stuffed animals or like paintings or anything, just like uh, memories that you can associate with a certain person, whether it's like a song or a movie. I think that's all like well portrayed in the movie, I guess. And even like the process of erasing it, using that stuff is, is like, yeah, like, it just makes so much sense like watching it. Like, yeah, of course that's what you would do if you were gonna have your brain or your memory erased of somebody, you'd take all that stuff and get rid of it. Like, I just think that's, that's something that uh, it's relatable, I guess, in any, in, in any time, in any time period, I'd say. There's always gonna be something, whether it be physical, or like an emotional connection, like through a song or a movie or like pictures. I don't know. There's always something in a relationship there that has certain memories of a person. I know at the end here, everybody kind of ends up going their separate ways due to infidelity or what have you. Um, <laughs> is, is this an ethical procedure? Is, do you think this, do you think this procedure, if you were in Joel's shoes, do you think this would be cathartic at any point? Or is this, is this just kind of a disaster getting in people's heads? I think this is a disaster like and I think it's I think that's shown with like Kirsten Dunst when she like finds out when you find out what happened you're like oh that sucks and then like even Joel and Clem when they find when they when they get their their tapes and they hear it they're they're like what what and they have to work through it so I think that's even like the the just like the the theme of the movie that that is love is like love is inevitably like doomed, but is it, is it worth pursuing if you're going to, is it worth pursuing if you know you're going to lose, if you're going to lose them or have these hardships Are these, are the, the good moments, are they worth it? So I, th I don't know if this procedure, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's, I don't know if it's ethical or not, but I would say that's definitely not, I wouldn't say it's cathartic or it helps at all. Um, and it can only like lead to, lead to, uh, badness as we see with tom wilkinson and his wife right 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 um 
Do you think um, uh, Joel and Clem work out? I don't know if they work out in the end, but I do. I do think that they try again at the end with after that whole okay. I I do I, in my mind they try again. I don't know if they make it because in my mind, like watching it, they're clearly not necessarily right for each other. Like they're pretty terrible to each other a lot of times, but they but they're drawn to each other for some reason. So I definitely see them keeping at it, whether they end up together or not. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind poses some ethical dilemmas, which ultimately play into Trey's sales pitch for the movie. So like my, my, my one sentence pitch, I guess, would be, what if you could erase somebody from your mind? Would, would you do it, I guess, with the log line? I think more specifically, would you erase an ex that you had a messy breakup with from your mind if you could? That's what this movie essentially shows you shows audiences takes him down if you if you could do that this is what it would look like and then you would probably realize oh no i don't want to do that because we have all these happy memories all these good times and i think the movie ultimately is trying to like it's, it's trying to ultimately argue for that the good times the happy times that you've had with somebody are are ultimately worth more than the bad times next up we'll shift to a rags-to-riches story that earned Will Smith his second career Oscar nomination. My name is Marco Marquez, and my favorite movie is The Pursuit of Happiness. I know I've already said this a couple times, but Marco Marquez, a recent KU grad, is another one of my go-to people to talk movies with. Plus, he was also the very first person I talked to for this entire project. When I asked him about his fondest movie memories, Marco pointed to seeing Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith in theaters and being overwhelmed with emotion. It was probably the first times that I had broken down in a theater. Which is an indicator of his relationship to movies as a whole. I guess you could say movies has been that kind of the, the filler uh, in my life where there has been a void, you know. People talk about some voids that, that they feel that they have, but they but movie I know for me has been one I know has been filled in my life. I can remember sitting on sitting going over to my grandparents' house, and that was what I got, and that was where I got introduced to movies like uh, The Godfather, Casino, and then but also like movie Jackass as well. <laughs> so a wide variety because I, my grandparents' place was a place to always be, and so. You know, I, I was there with my grandma and grandpa, so we'd watch old movies, and then I was there with my older brother, so we'd watch. I would watch movies I was probably too young to see. Like I'm pretty sure Borat was one that I saw over there as well. Movies that were exposed to me too young, but you know, I always, I'm always, I've always thinking. My mind is never quiet, and it's even during a movie. And my roommate Terrell can attest to that because I, I know there's plenty of times during movies where I'll just look to him and be like, "Bro, did you see that? Did you see that?" So. It's, 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 a, it's a peace of mind, in a way. And it's that emotional resonance, plus the charismatic leading man, that led to the pursuit of happiness pick. So the factors that went into this decision were, uh, you know, an actor that I've liked my whole life, and that, that being Will Smith, lots of stuff that I've seen him in. Um, the theater experience, theatrical experience as well. This one not being as similar to... Uh, Revenge of the Sith as far as going in knowing what's happening, but the emotional effect is still there as well. The attachment with it 
the message it sends. I think that this I think that this movie has a um, kind of kind of a greater. I think I think the message itself is what the movie was was intended for because I think it was only nominated for best actor. Um, I didn't do my I didn't do my award research on it, but yeah. it wasn't a big it wasn't a big award movie, but it came out and, during the award season, so that as well big it was a big it was a big release, and it's a movie that I've gone to, and it's like it's like Heat for you. You make you make sure you watch Heat once a year um, on Super Bowl Sunday. I make sure I watch a movie like Pursuit of Happiness once a year because I feel like it's a it's it's a movie that I really enjoy to rewatch and it's a movie, like I said, with that message that, that, that will serve its purpose. It can be a movie for any generation, any generation. From 2006, the pursuit of happiness written by Steve Conrad and directed by Gabrielle Muccino follows Chris Gardner played by Will Smith, who is a struggling salesman who's invested his life savings in portable bone density scanners in 1981 San Francisco. Not only does he fail to sell many scanners, but he's later evicted from his apartment and his wife leaves him for a job in New York. But he does maintain custody of his son Christopher Jr., played by Jaden Smith, adding more responsibility and pressure on Chris to make things right. So, he works to secure an unpaid internship at a prestigious brokerage firm, but without an income, he's forced to sleep in shelters and BART stations as he struggles to make a way. It's a rags-to-riches true story of a homeless man turned successful businessman and garnered Will Smith an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. So there are, there are plenty of... Actually, full disclosure, I just watched this for the first time this week. And okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, and I know there's there are plenty of like quote unquote depressing parts in this, but do you consider this a happy movie? Yes, yes, and I consider that a happy movie by my own definition by def- by the movies I would say um, by the movie's definition because what is he doing throughout the film? He is pursuing those things that he's pursuing what brings what he knows will bring him happiness in the end and that's kind of you know getting the job being able to take care of his son and that kind of financial um freedom you could say in a way something that new financial revenue that now new financial avenue where you know he was put himself into becoming a salesman you know he put his whole entire savings into wanting to sell um particular product now he sees a whole nother line of he was just trying to provide for his family. That right there was his happiness and he was willing to do that anyway. So I, I believe, I believe it, is a, it is a happy film because you have, to get through the, you have to get through the rain to get to the rainbow. You have to get through the storm uh, to get to the sun. Like, that's just what happens. It's the light at the end of the tunnel and that's what the movie explains is that's, that's what happiness is. Happiness, you, if you want it in life, there's going to be a lot of crud that you go through, but how much are you willing to sacrifice for your own happiness you remember the first time you watched it yes yep yep uh saw it in theaters the year it came out uh went and saw it um with my parents my family um i could tell you right now kind of like the ending the uncut gyms our reaction letting out that big that big curse word that we all love to say <laughs> uh, i'm sure a lot of people can share with us just letting out that big oh, when he walks out of that final meeting when he learns that he got the job um as a stockbroker 
I, I, that, that right there was all that emotion in me. I was sitting next to my mom. We, I remember her breaking down, which made me just like start breaking down because like I could feel it too, but I didn't want to cry. But I can remember looking over and seeing the tears roll down her eyes. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to start crying too, because this guy, you know, it's like you were there for, you were there along that ride with him through that just whole darkness. And he finally got that job and you just felt that in your stomach of like, just happiness for him. You're just like, you're so happy that he, that he reached that point in his life where he could finally walk amongst the people in New York and not always running. Because that's what he's doing. He's chasing that bag. Uh, you may not know the exact number for this, but do you have a ballpark figure for how many times you've seen this? Oh, probably. I can say 10. 10 at minimum. I've, like I said, I try to watch it every year, but then on top of that, I watch it around the holiday season because, like I said, it's just a great reminder. It's just a great reminder. Um, what makes this film so rewatchable for you? Because how real it is. He talks about – he, he quotes the Constitution a lot, and he goes back to Thomas Jefferson, and he talks about, you know, it's literally built – it's literally what this country is built off of. It's a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's something that we're all entitled to. We're all entitled to pursue that ha- what brings us the ha- that happiness. And to see him take advantage of the opportunity and prove, because remember, there's a lot of times where he's proving his value as well. And that means maybe sacrificing the last $5 that you have um, for one of the partner's taxis. Because you know that in that moment, that $5 it shows you it shows you how much five it shows you how much a five dollars means to someone who needs it, but also how will but how much they know the importance of giving it as well um, and that's another thing that just speaks volumes as well as the message is it's better to give than to receive and Chris Gardner does a lot of giving um, throughout the movie, and in the end you know it's finally he, he and that's a, he gets that big receive the job. Um, so just how real it is, how real, um, how, how, how real it can be from, um, just going, you see, you see the process of he, he can't go to a shelter with his son because the shelter only accepts women and children. Oh crap. Well, that's, that's, that's another bump on the road for Chris. He's got to go find another shelter. Um, sometimes the shelter can't accept everybody. And that's how you get scenarios where he, he has to, he has to seclude to the subway bathroom. Um, it just shows you what it just shows you the real message of seeing someone start from the bottom and then really getting there. <laughs> and I thought it was cool that uh, he walks past Chris Gardner uh, at the end of the film. I don't know if you knew that, um, but the real Chris Gardner is uh, there with him. Um, they just kind of walk past each other. Um, and it's another, it's another thing. It's another, it's another hidden message as well with the Rubik's cube and the taxi is you never know who you're going to come across in life. You got to treat everybody the same with respect and I just think that's who Will Smith is as well. That's why I love the. That's why I love this role for him so much because I felt like he didn't really have to do that. He really just had to be himself in the situation. Because what do, what do we talk about with Fresh Prince? Every episode is every has a meaning to it. Every a lesson taught with it. Um, and I felt like throughout this movie, Will Smith was just teaching us new lessons indirectly, not even having to tell us, just through his acting, through his acting. There we go. Through his acting. That's what he accomplished. He accomplished everything that this movie needed to do with his acting. We've talked about child actors in previous episodes, but this is a little different. Jaden Smith, the real life son of Will Smith, acts with his father in the film. 
Marco also mentioned he first saw this in theaters as a kid, so I was wondering how much seeing the hardships and father-son relationship on screen resonated with him. You never really get that side of um, his son. You never, we never get the, his son's perspective. And I think that's what makes this movie so great. Because imagine if Chris Gardner's son was to uh, see this movie not knowing the story already himself. I think then it's like, whoa, remember where he, remember where he was throughout the movie? He's either with his mom, he's at preschool. Yeah, that's it, or he's with his dad going, you know, going through the hardships along with them that comes with it. Uh, so I think that as a kid, seeing how much a parent was willing to sacrifice for his son and how much he was willing to do just to get that next, just to get that next paycheck, because he knew not only did he have a kid to shelter, but he also had a child to feed and a child to uh, teach, which is a big one, and a child to um, you know place in the right environment. He had a responsibility. Um, so seeing that as a kid, you know, I asking me seeing that as a kid, seeing how much a, willing, a parent was willing to do one, it made me know right then and there, I wasn't ready to be a parent <laughs> and, it t- and it showed me what it takes to be a parent. And, you know, I, I, I can tell you to this day, I'm still not ready to be a parent, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the side that you, uh, you, what the takeaway that I, you, you get from it as a child is just gratefulness, you know, grateful that you're not, that you get your own bed to be in at night, that you're not sleeping around strangers in a shelter with your mom and dad. You're not having to see your parents, you know, fight for the front of the line, fight with strangers. Cause I love that they show that side um, in the story with um, Will Smith. They, they, you, he breaks cause he's human. They show that human side. He breaks, he gets mad. He gets angry. He gets pissed off. He gets, uh, he, he gets pushed too far to the edge but his son doesn't know that. His son just sees him as his dad. He never, he, he doesn't see, he doesn't see him as that. So I think as a kid, you get to see that it, it, as a, it allows you to see that side of, of, of adults, uh, parents that you don't get to see because they keep that. They don't, they don't, they hide that from you because I, I, they don't want to show you. They don't want to show that part of them to you. So yeah, that, that, that was kind of the takeaway I got as a child. That's why it's always stuck with me. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned it there, but um how how did this affect um, your either your viewpoint of being a, a parent someday, or even just your relationship to your parents, and maybe just uh, recontextualizing that, or maybe even saying like, "Hey, mom and dad, like appreciate you even more after watching this," or anything like that. Right. Yes. One thing that I th- thought about was that I thought about was the, was the mom leaving and going to New York and taking that job up there with her sister and brother and um, brother-in-law. And I remember uh, Smith and his character Gardner saying in the movie, you're weak. You're, you know, you called her weak. You're giving up too easy. And I think that, you know, if we're going in, if we're, if we're jumping into a movie, his son, uh, which I don't care. I don't know why I can't, I did a rewatch on Monday too. And I can't remember his son's name, but the son, Christopher. Yeah. Christopher. So Chris Jr. I think, you know, he's going to ask those questions when he gets older. You know, why wasn't mom a part of our lives or anything? And I think that knowing, I think that this will help maybe with that. Maybe I don't know what his relationship with his mom now is in real life. Maybe that's something that helped because he's understanding of where uh, they were as a family and why she had to leave because she, they, they were, they, they were, they were a broken home. They were, they were getting, they were about to get evicted out of their apartment. The, the bills were getting paid late. The man that she had married was not uh, being able to provide for them. So I think that's something that, you know, as a child, 
um, see maybe he'll grow up and, you know, just kind of learn. You got, you got to know that there's always two sides to a story um, in a way. So that's, that's, that's probably a takeaway um, that, I, that, I take as a, that I took as a kid. And knowing, and knowing how much your parents sacrifice, it all goes back to sacrifice too. And that brings the gratefulness for your parents. And um, so I can tell you right now, my parents are multimillionaires. We're, we, come, we, come from the blue, we come from the blue collar society. We come with that work ethic. So, um, and I know they take pride in that. But yeah, just gratefulness to the parents and gratefulness for this and just, you know, being able to shine that light on the sacrifices that a parent will do and how willing they're make, how willing they are to make those sacrifices uh, as well. Yes. And a very important person that we've kind of mentioned several times is Will Smith. Um, he, I mean, as everybody knows Will Smith, um, I know everybody knows he came up from the Fresh Prince show, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and how he's kind of, I would say he's more known for his comedic chops, um, just whether it's, you know, Independence Day or Men in Black or Hitch, like you mentioned. But he, he does mm-hmm. have some of those more serious roles. Um, you know, I, I think um, I think of this, I think of Ali, I think of I Am Legend, you know, some of those some of those more dramatic roles, if you will. We mentioned earlier he got nominated um, for a, um, an Oscar for this role for Best Actor, mm-hmm. his second nomination um, after nominated for Ali a few years earlier. Um, the, the film's only Oscar nomination, um, by the way, and uh, th- mm. this is this is kind of a this is kind of a change of pace for him. And you know, he, he he's kind of picked his picked his spots for his dramatic uh, work. And just just for you, kind of to see those two sides of him, and this, and I mean, there are moments of comedy in this for sure, but this is definitely him going for it. Um, and just to see him like this, how, how different is that for you? And how much do you kind of enjoying enjoy seeing this side of him? I, uh, I love it. I love seeing the side of Will Smith uh, because like I said, this is a guy that I grew connection with through uh, Men in Black, um, through Fresh Prince, uh, just through those early the Independence Day. You said it right there, early, early movies, early work, um, the young Will Smith, seeing him being able to be the serious man that he was in this movie, the role that he took. I watched an interview with him before. He, ne- he, he never takes a role unless he feels like he's, you know, unless he feels dragged to, unless he feels like there's a purpose. He doesn't take, he doesn't just take any role. He, he sits down and makes a decision. I believe that he had taken um, the, he had taken the suicide squad uh, one over the independence day role. He wasn't, he wasn't in the second independence day because he said, he felt that he was like, all right, I've already done independence day. I've already done something like that. Why don't we try something different? He's always looking to do something. He's always looking to challenge himself. And so seeing that, seeing this movie, um, was probably his was probably his most challengeable movie because right now it's like how can I make people because when what what's so great about movies is and what you know what makes movies but what you know what makes a great movie is and I'm trying to sell to an audience as well and so what Will is trying to do is he's trying to sell not Fresh Prince Will to us he's trying to sell Pursuit of Happiness Chris Gardner Will to us and you can tell that he took this challenge head on and I don't think that the bringing Jaden along was an accident. That was, on, that was on purpose. Bringing his son along, he knew what numbers this would do for him in his career in the future. But right now, right now, he was going to play the part of his son in a movie. And I think that adding him to it was very smart because that brings out the, that brings out the realness in it. Like, I believe that helped him with, I believe that his son helped him with this movie um, as far as getting into that state of mind goes. But 
I, I, I like seeing the serious side of Will because he can play a character like this so well. And you can get, and we're, we're already attached to him as fans of his work. And so, you know, having that attachment with him going through and then watching this movie and seeing him, because, you know, there's parts in Fresh Prince, of Bel- Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where he gets serious, where we have to see his seriousness in acting. So we see that, we see that again in this film. And, you know, it felt like I wasn't on a ride with Chris Gardner. I was on a ride with Will Smith and his son because i didn't know who his son was until this movie we, like i said we were all introduced to his son through this movie and to see him as a father with his son working with his son and seeing the emotion that he goes through this film it's 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 it, it spoke it spoke levels is that is act I, there's a reason why he got he's getting more serious he got more serious roles after this movie is because people saw people were able to take him serious um and i, I he, he does it so well uh, he's got he's got two sides of him he can adapt he can adapt so well to these type of uh scenarios um so seeing him um in this role it's hard to say it's hard to say too from because it's kind of biased also because like i said with the attachment to will smith and who he is and being one of my favorite actors it's like adam sandler in the same way i can get, I, i'm just attached to him because that's adam sandler man that's my guy that's someone I love. That's someone I enjoy watching. But um, I would like I would like to see him more serious roles. Collateral Beauty was good. Um, I Robot, fantastic movie. Um, another good Will Smith movie. Comedic and serious at the same time. I Am Legend, straight serious. I, I that's another theater experience we could talk about after this recording um, because that one there is another one where sacrifice man. It's he he takes these roles with a purpose and he he makes them work. Marco also wanted to share a few of his favorite moments from the film. Uh, I'll start first with uh, Will's Oscar moment in it when they're up, when him and Chris Jr. are up on the blacktop playing basketball, and Will tells his son like he first tells him, "Man, you're not gonna be you're not gonna be good. Don't be don't put too much hope into wanting to be a basketball star because your dad wasn't so good." And then he takes that moment to realize what he just said to his child. And he's like, and then he, then he redeems himself. He follows it up with, don't let anyone tell you, you can't do anything. Not even me, not even me, your own dad. And to see the see the see, um, um, I thought that was a great moment um, in this, in, in this, in the movie. And that they took the time to, once again, when the parent slips, but then he, they recover themselves. They realize what they did. They realize what they just told their son, especially in the situation that they're in. Um, Christopher's ability to adapt in conversation with people. He, and I think that's something that we all should take, take with us, truly just to be ourselves, but also to be a good communicator. And that's someone who listens as well. And he's able to communicate with people from, uh, from his status in life all the way up to the doctors and the CEOs. I mean, that's how he won that uh, conversation in his second meeting, in the, in, the, in the meeting that got him that internship. If you remember, he shows up and uh, just got out of jail um, for parking tickets. And so he was, co- and he was, painting, his, he was painting his apartment. Um, so he was covered in pain. He had a white beater on. He had a, jack, a jacket on. De- definitely didn't look like someone, definitely did not look like your Wall Street guy. But he was able to go into that meeting and just went over four partners of, of an investment firm, stockbroker firm. I don't know what the proper words for it. But he, he walked. He walked. He walked into Wall Street, looking like look looking raggedy, and was able to gain. Was able to 
grabbed that internship with his words and his personality. Um, and that's what I just love about it. And that's just Will Smith also, his personality. That's what makes me love the guy um, because of who he is. And that's what makes you love the movie even more because you're also watching Will Smith also uh, do a brilliant job as an actor um, in, in, the, in, in each scene. Um, but yeah, so like just that, that, that scene sticks out as well. Sure. And I remember um, I, this would have probably been around the time the film came out, but I remember I think it was on the, uh, the Oprah Winfrey show. They kept, they were, I think uh, Will and maybe even Jaden too were on there and they showed the scene in the bathroom at the, mm. at the BART station when they were sleeping when they had to sleep there cause they did, they were homeless. And, and I, and I think that that's such a, that's such an interesting perspective too about uh, just uh, poverty and homelessness and how they they didn't really pull pull any punches in that respect and just kind of uh, like you said the basketball the basketball scene was was an Oscar moment I think that was also kind of a moment that they would, that they would play on highlight reels for sure. You you nailed it right there. That's one that totally slipped my mind and you brought that because remember how they remember how they got into that bathroom. He he used to use Christopher's imagination remember the time machine the dinosaurs and it's you know as a kid you're as you're sitting in that theater like like that like I wonder why he's creating his imagination like I wonder why they see dinosaurs and then they go into the bathroom and it's like oh my god he was doing that just so they would just so he could you know not you know it's it's fun it's better that way than to tell your son hey let's go sleep in the uh bathroom you 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 right there just pointed out one of the, one of the one of the most crucial scenes in the movie because that right there is another moment of just the bottom. I think that right there is the climax, the bottom. That's where he's hit the lowest of lows in his life. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because that one had slipped my mind. Uh, a, very, a very important scene in the movie. At the end of the day, Marco says you need to watch The Pursuit of Happiness if you want to feel good. You know, in a year where... It's hard. To, it's hard to have that feeling where there's just so many things um, going again, going, going, not going your way. Um, if you want just two hours where you can just feel good and um, know that where you're at in life right, right now is not where you're gonna be forever, but that's your decision only. So if you just want to feel good, if you want to have that feel good story, just have that feeling of motivation, inspiration. If you need something to, if you need something to get you up, pick you up, that pick me up. This movie right here is well worth uh, your two hours because not, all, not if you're someone that's stuck, like we said, we like to use that we like to use that metaphor, like to use that metaphor, uh, stuck in the mud. If you feel stuck, this is a movie that can help, maybe not show you directly, but show you indirectly um, just how you can get out and that right there because that that whole year is 2020 for chris gardner <laughs> until the end like that whole movie is 2020 uh until the end so if, if you if, if you need a, if you need that feel good that pick me up uh this movie right here with little with a little met with messages in between i think that i think i think that right there is why people should watch just to feel good My name is Carlos Peterson, and my favorite movie is Stranger Than Fiction. Carlos Peterson, another recent KU grad, says that early on, 
movies were kind of just the Friday night entertainment for he and his family. I didn't, I guess, delve into movies probably more so until I got in, into college. Uh, most of the time, it would just be a, an action movie or a comedy movie. There wasn't very much, I guess, deep diving into movies as, as far as that goes. But when Carlos found Stranger Than Fiction while scrolling through Netflix one day, it was a different experience. Stranger Than Fiction, I actually fell on. It was kind of, uh, it was back when I was going to school here um, in the Chicagoland area, but it was like, it was probably when I had just gotten done with like my classes. It was like a late, early, late afternoon, probably. And I was just like browsing movies. I was just bored for that day. And I, I saw seen stranger than fiction when I was kind of like scrolling through the selections. And that was like, my, my experience with Wolf Ferrell obviously wasn't stranger than fiction. Um, so I, I was like, all right, you, you know, let's just, let's give this a shot. So I went into it think expecting it to be terrible. Um, because this wasn't something I was expecting to see in terms of a role from him, but uh, ended up being probably one of my two or three favorite movies I've ever seen. So, From 2006, Stranger Than Fiction, written by Zach Helm and directed by Mark Forster, follows lonely IRS agent Harold Crick, played by Will Ferrell, who lives a very monotonous and mundane lifestyle. However, once he hears a voice inside his head, he begins to question his entire life, especially as the voice seems to be controlling him to a certain extent. The voice belongs to author Karen Eiffel, played by Emma Thompson, who is writing a book where Harold is one of the characters and she's trying to find a way to kill him off. Both Karen and Harold wrestle with these existential questions about love, death, and the balance between doing what's best for the story and what's best for Harold. How, how often do you revisit it? I've probably seen it four or five times over the, since I've seen it, which I would probably want to say the last time I saw it or the first time I saw it was 2014, 2015, maybe. Sure. Um, what, what makes it so rewatchable for you? What makes you want to not only just kind of a thing you found on Netflix one day, but also just kind of want to go back to it? Um, I, I think a lot of it is um, it poses a lot of existential questions that we quite often ask ourselves where you kind of catch this character in the middle of kind of sleepwalking through his life. And all of a sudden he just out of nowhere, you know, a voice appears in his head and he's constantly being told that he's crazy until all of a sudden he realized it's a narration of his life. And there's a lot of, as he's trying to figure out how to navigate, as it's said in the movie, his imminent death, he figures out, how to relive his life again. Um, so I think there are a lot of parallels that I've tried to draw in my life from watching that movie. And I also think I mean, Dustin Hoffman might have been, that might have been my favorite performance I've ever seen um, in the movie. I thought he was incredible in it. Um, and yeah, let, let, let's dig into that cast a little bit because you mentioned a couple names there. But I mean, you got Will Ferrell, Emma Thompson, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Dustin Hoffman, Queen Latifah. Uh, Tony Hale, the guys from the Sonic commercials just kind of popped up. Yep. There. That was a surprise. Um, what performances from this movie? I know you mentioned Dustin Hoffman, but what performances from this movie kind of stick out to you? Uh, in particular, I think Emma Thompson is brilliant in this movie. I, I, I think her, I, I relate on many levels to her jar sense of humor. Like there was the, I think, point in the movie where she's watching like people drive off a bridge because she's trying to figure out how to kill Harold Crack in the movie 
And uh, Queen Latifah says it's a nic- the, here's a nicotine patch. He's like, I don't need that. He's like, it may save your life. Well, I'm not in the business of saving lives. In, in fact, I'm in quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know, she that was, that was great. Um, and and you mentioned Will Ferrell because obviously he had already done Anchorman by this point. He'd already been on SNL. He was definitely no. And there there are elements of comedy in this film, no doubt, but. It definitely is a more dramatic role, um, and, and I was just curious what your what your thoughts are on comedians kind of going for the more dramatic roles. I know some of the notable ones are Jim Carrey and Robin Williams, and Will Ferrell's done it a couple times too. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on comedians kind of I guess taking themselves a little more seriously in these types of films? Uh, to be quite honest, I've, I've I've actually thought about this over the years, um, and in my personal opinion and, and in experiences in my life, I feel like comedy at times can come from a very dark place. Um, a lot of times comedy can be an illumination on the dark places that people can go to. Um, and I think a lot, particularly with this movie, I think a lot of it is kind of uh, illuminating the minutia of everyday life. And I don't think that a lot of times people don't uh, like to visit because they view the uh, they view the day to day as kind of boring or un- unworthy of what they want from their life versus trying to be present in their lives. Um, but it, it, I also look at like roles with like Jack Black in like The Holiday and you know and, and things like that. I mean that's a little bit more rom com, but uh, seeing the versatility in roles and bringing comedy into what it really should be. It's your everyday life, you know. Uh, I think Stephen Hawking had a great quote, which was life would be so tragic if it weren't so damn funny. Right. Right. And you, and you mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a very dry humor in, in stranger than fiction. Are you, are you drawn more to, to things with, with that dry sense of humor? Um, yeah. As, as I think we both know, I'm a massive fan of Seinfeld and very dry sense of humor. And I don't know, I'm, like I, I'm very much drawn to, I guess, absurdity in the day-to-day so i think that generally is what draws me to comedy and particularly this movie and then also just kind of mentioned the existential crises throughout this movie and and i feel like there's kind of two perspectives with it and so um obviously a lot of this movie is told kind of looking at harold crick as he's walking through life and also trying to figure out this imminent death that you referred to earlier there's also the, the writer emma thompson um what did you think of the choice to kind of tell this story from two perspectives so i think i i uh, i guess the weird thing is i almost believe it's i don't know if it's like linear in the sense where you have harold crick on one end you have emma thompson but then you kind of have like dustin thompson kind of in the middle of it because i guess theoretically i mean he had written all those letters to the author emma thompson in the movie but he's almost kind of like the absurdist in this where um, but particularly from the standpoint of um, what's her name, Karen Eiffel was her character's name in the movie. Uh, I think it's very much, I think it's important the way she's played in this movie because it's, she, I think for so long, she's like engulfed in her career and trying to figure out how to kill Harold Crick that she forget. And, it, it's almost like a duality. It's really hard where it's like there's beauty in the tragedy that she writes and Dustin Hoffman like eloquently puts it at the end of the movie, like telling Harold, like you have to die. It's a masterpiece versus knowingly 
like doing so and like killing somebody like like at, at what point do we like draw the line and like killing people in, in literature uh-huh. um but i think i think the way that it's played is very important and i think that as she like evolves i think it's i think it's a it's a beautiful part of the movie right right and um and another aspect of that is obviously harold is trying to figure out whether he's in a comedy or a tragedy especially with his relationship with maggie gyllenhaal um how do you feel that this movie uh portrays uh loneliness because i know i mean obviously there's like a lot of there's a lot of scenes of rain there's a lot of uh i mean harold is terrible picking up social cues he's kind of he's kind of bumbling through life a little bit and obviously has a very structured life kind of in his own head uh, how do you feel like this movie portrays uh, that idea of loneliness or solitude? I think now, like now that we're in COVID, I think I'm starting to pick up on some of it a little bit more. And some of it, I, I almost kind of relate to in, in in Harold's perspective. Like when he offers to buy the cookies, which is an incredibly uncomfortable scene. Where I'm saying, "What are you doing, man?" And when at the same time thinking that's probably something I would do, mm-hmm. simply because at, at times I'm like I'll, I'll get uncomfortable with social interactions um, and trying to figure out like where the line is, I guess, for lack of a better term. So I, I think in, in some ways uh, on, on a milder, on a milder level, I think it, it touches on it pretty well, but I, I also think, I think it touches on the, as you said, the isolation, but more so what people like once they're kind of like outside of that realm of high school, college, that sense of structure, like, it's kind of like this now what people just kind of meander for lack of a better word. And then, and then the opposite side of that, um, I think of a movie like adaptation where uh, Karen Eiffel has a, an increasingly difficult uh, bout of writer's block. And I know that we're both, we're both writers in our respect. Well, how did you think that this movie kind of uh, showed that process of writer's block and trying to fight through it? (laughs) I actually think this is, probably the most hilarious one of the most hilarious part of the movie like one or two i think like when she was talking to queen latifah like at the beginning of the movie where she says do you think i need structure or any sort of like actual writing no it's it's kind of like what they would say about talent or it's like it's just a gift from god like i'm just gonna get it or like the way that she said it's like a spur of the moment thing that's how i'm gonna figure out how to kill him it's not gonna be because i'm working towards it which i thought was um really funny which at times i fall victim to it's like well eventually it'll just come to me you know i don't um so i thought that was a pretty funny portrayal of it in the movie um so i i think as far as how i interpret it and uh, the way i do it i don't know it's just kind of part of the job i guess <laughs> i love i love that part of the job um and you know obviously uh harold is an irs agent and part of his job is just you know, being hated on and also just the fact of like, you know, he's, he's kind of those cubicles and just like the, the filing and all that stuff. It just, it gets kind of monotonous. And I, and I think of another movie that is a uh, slightly different tone, but kind of talking about the same idea as office space. Um, and just, just that idea of just that monotonous day-to-day grind of in an office um, and it, how, how it can kind of get to you. Um, what do you think of that aspect of it, especially when he's trying to talk to uh, Tony Hale's character, trying to, as everybody kind of, everybody kind of asks him as he goes along, you know, what's this calculation? What's the, what's 30, 345 times 60, whatever. Um, what what do you think of that aspect of it, kind of how it portrayed office life and kind of the mundanity of it? So 
this is more from like a visual perspective, but I think one of the things that I like it's somewhat somewhat calming about the movie is almost everything, particularly in like Carol's apartment and like certain like shots in the movie is very like symmetrical and like very what's I don't know, blockish, I guess would be the way I would describe it. But uh it's very much I don't know, like very very much like a like a mediating and like the mood when you watch the movie. Uh, it's very, it's very much like you said. It's kind of like monotonous. It's very, very much feels like an office. Like I'm just trying to get through the day. Like um, it's very much was Harold's tone during the movie, and obviously the the coworkers there were just there as I guess guys just kind of prying at him for basic math questions. And uh, and, and in many ways, it was almost. I don't want to word, use the word dehumanizing, but it was very much like, hey, man, you're like crunching numbers. Like, that's what you're doing here. And and then he obviously kind of breaks out of that a little bit when he find, when he has to go audit the baker because um, Tony Hill thinks it will, it'll be a little easier for him than the, I think, the stock trader or whatever. Um, but he goes to the baker. It's Maggie Gyllenhaal. You know, I, I love I love that scene when they just always start yelling, tax man, tax man, when he walks in. Um, first of all, what did you think of the dynamic, the relationship dynamics between Maggie Gyllenhaal and Will Ferrell in this movie? I guess early it's uncomfortable because Harold is very much in a shell, uh, as, as a character and particularly with Maggie, which I think over the years, I'm starting to identify with more, uh, more so than Harold. Uh, but, uh, there was the, the, I guess the stoic tone that he, he always had like I'm just trying to be professional do my job and uh i think as i mean as we're like seeing through the movie he's like i guess recapturing like the human element of his life because he's very much like in a he's very much prisoner to the boomerang of habit and just doing all these different things and then you know he meets the baker and she's you know calling the irs things like imperialist swine as she's filing her tax returns <laughs> um so i I very much enjoyed it because it did make him uncomfortable, but more so for the better. Um, it, it helped him, I guess, get out of that shell, for lack of a better term. Right, and I, and I mean, it also is kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, a reason to live for him, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's. I think that I think that's probably. I don't want to say it's it's probably the most important question posed. It's like, why do you exist essentially? Um, there, and uh, in late stages of the movie, it, it, Harold is always just the, the, the thing that he had said, or the thing that he would like constantly say as he was like realizing like imminent death throughout the early movies. Like, I just want to live, man. It's, you know, that's what you would constantly say. And towards the end of the movie, it becomes, okay, here's why I want to live, you know, like I want to, you know, I want to learn how to play the guitar. I want to, you know, he even says like, I can run away with Anna or we can go away. Like, I don't have to have this life anymore. I can start to be present in my own life, which I, to me, I think that's probably the, I guess the beauty in the movie. Uh Uh, um, One of the, one of the big crucial moments um, between uh, Anna and Harold is when Anna finally when he brings her the flowers and when he, he goes up to her apartment and he'd been learning the guitar. Um, I, I know, I know you're, we obviously talk about music all the time, but what do you think of that scene where he's just playing a whole wide world 
um, and they're singing along together. First off, I like the song. Um, I thought that was a good song choice for, I guess, for particularly that scene. But I thought it was, I don't know, I feel like it was moving because Harold was like finally starting to open up. He's like, originally, he's like, I'm not going to play the guitar. You know, I'll do it some other time. Like, I think on some level, it's like him, like, once again, like putting off him living his life mm-hmm. until finally he just says, screw it, I'm going to play the guitar. And then lo and behold, you know, Anna's joining in singing and then what happens, happens. Earlier, Carlos and I talked about the use of dual perspectives in telling this story, which led me to one question. Do you feel like, uh, and maybe this was explained and I just missed it, but do you feel like Harold or um, Karen Eiffel are in control of the story? Uh, uh, probably up until he meets her, she has the power. Um, and then I feel like some moral compass kind of takes over, mm-hmm. um, for Karen Eiffel. I, I enjoyed the, the imagery of Harold, like the, the scene, one of the scenes that always sticks out to me is him like leaving Anna's place early in the morning and the music, the music, I think the music that plays is like excellent during it. Cause it kind of just sets the the mundane mood of like someone knowingly facing their own death, which is I sounds really terrifying and sadistic on some level, but he like, he just wakes up and kind of goes about his day. Like he's picking an apple, you know, doing his single winter knot tie as he like walks to his own death. And then you have um, Emma Thompson kind of narrating this in the background. And then all of a sudden it just stops and it's, her constance telling her like you don't have to do this right you said moral compass or even maybe maybe a watch face uh for in the context of this movie um and then of course as we talked about anna kind of one of the reasons he i mean he says at one point when he when he finds out he's facing his death and it's just coming around the corner that it's just really bad timing uh and then there's things are kind of finally lining up for him i'm curious what do you think of the choice not to kill off harold See, this is the question that always tears me, like tears me in two between this. Cause it's like, it, I do agree with Dustin Hoffman that it's like, it's a masterpiece. Like if Harold dies, it's a masterpiece, like without a doubt. But I, I'm always torn between torn with what Emma Thompson is saying. He's like, if you have a man that's willingly knowing, like willingly going to face his own death, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? And I'm like, yes, but the purpose of, you know, beauty and literature probably not um so i i don't know I, it's always it, it probably i every time i watch it I, I probably have a different opinion about whether or not he should stay alive or not um and it, obviously for the purpose of this exercise harold is fictional and he wouldn't actually be killed um but i, I guess now I, I right now after having seen it again i probably err on the side of him dying but you know it's my opinion as you can probably tell this isn't your typical fare from the likes of will ferrell especially with the heavy subject matter and existential questions the film poses that also means it's a bit tricky to one describe and two entice others to check it out probably for this one it's a great cast it's funny it's moving and it poses the question why do you exist so Maybe some people aren't ready for the heavy question, but I, th- I think on some level, I, I think it'll get enough people to watch it. Next up, 
another SNL alum facing an existential crisis. Only this time, it's almost entirely his own fault. My name is Tatum Getting, and my favorite movie is Uncut Gems. Tatum Getting, a current student at KU, says she first started getting into movies during her sophomore year of high school. I like started watching the Oscars and I was like, I don't know any of these movies. So then I like felt like kind of like left out. And so I just started watching more like critically acclaimed movies. Um, And so like junior year, I think that was 2018, it was 2018. And I think that 2017 was when like Lady Bird came out and like when Call Me By Your Name came out. And Lady Bird is definitely one of my favorite movies like of all time. And so I think, honestly, when I saw Lady Bird in theaters, I was like, wow, I love this movie so much. I related to it so much. And then that's kind of what took off with like wanting to see more critically acclaimed movies, I would say. Tatum mentions Lady Bird a movie we covered in a previous episode, as another favorite. And based on our conversation, A24 films played a pivotal role in her watching those aforementioned critically acclaimed movies. She was even wearing A24 socks during this recording. We've talked about the indie powerhouse studio in previous episodes, and one of their more recent films that took film Twitter and the like by storm, of course, was Uncut Gems. So I feel like Uncut Gems is a very interesting movie to like dissect and analyze because of the main character, Howard. I mean, Howard has a lot of characteristics that um, are pretty unlikable. Um, I mean, like he like cheats, steals, lies, etc. And like, He's not the brightest character either because he never really learns from his mistake and from his mistakes. And so I think that that's kind of something to not like about him either. But the thing that's so interesting is that like everyone in the audience is still rooting for him. You know, like he's even though he's not the perfect protagonist, like, I don't know. Um, like a Marvel superhero, like he's not like the like perfect clean cut protagonist, but like for some reason we are still rooting for him, even though he's essentially like the villain in the movie. From 2019, Uncut Gems, written by Josh and Benny Safdie and Ronald Bronstein and directed by the Safdie brothers, follows degenerate gambler Howard Ratner, played by Adam Sandler, who runs a jewelry store in Manhattan's Diamond District. He's in debt to his brother-in-law, and to get out of that, as well as to satisfy his own greed, Howard locates and procures a mysterious black opal he plans to sell at an upcoming auction. That's all well and good, until Boston Celtics star forward Kevin Garnett visits the shop and sees the opal as his new good luck charm. Things inevitably get complicated, the anxiety increases, and Howard continues making bad decisions which perpetuate his losing streak. This takes an immense toll on Howard's wife and kids, his co-worker-turned-mistress Julia, the mobsters he's indebted to, and his own mental and physical state. Featuring performances from Lakeith Stanfield, Julia Fox, Adina Menzel, Judd Hirsch, and Kevin Garnett in The Weeknd as themselves, this paranoia-filled thriller instantly stood out among the strong crop of films from 2019. But not with the Academy, apparently. 
You know, I remember uh, when this movie came out initially, and I think a lot of people had a similar reaction of uh, whether whether you saw it in theaters or whether you saw it like at home or something. Uh, you have a visceral reaction the first time you watch Uncut Gems, right? So what was what was that like for you the first time you watched this movie? Where was it at? How did you feel? That sort of thing. So I actually watched the movie with my parents um, at B&B Theaters in Shawnee. And um, I like didn't really know what I what to expect. I just knew Adam Sandler was in this new movie. And I like didn't know anything about like the Diamond District because I mean, obviously I am born and raised Joko girl. Um, don't really know anything about the Diamond District. So it was, I kind of just like went in blind and like the opening scene or like, I guess like not the opening scene, but the scene where like we meet Howard is like when he has a colonoscopy. <laughs> like, I think that that's just such an interesting way to introduce the main character of the movie because it's in like such like a vulnerable state. And like, I feel like throughout the entire movie, Howard is just so vulnerable and like he trusts too many people and like he just gets himself in so many bad situations um and i feel like the movie as a whole was just so stressful and it was there was never a scene where you were like all right i can relax eat some popcorn maybe like check my phone like there were no scenes like that um and so i feel like that's kind of I wouldn't say a flaw, but I would say that's something that kind of turned a lot of people off. I would, because I mean, I'm just taking this from like when my mom, like when we like went out of the theater and she was like, oh my God, that movie was too stressful for me. Like nothing went right. I mean, like so much was going on in every single scene, but I feel like that was just kind of like Howard's whole thing. You know, and like he just he has so many issues and so many problems that just pile on top of one another. And like it's just I mean, the ending is foreseeable. And like you all like I feel like throughout the entire movie, I thought like this is going to be the end for Howard. Like when he got like when he was like hanging out of the window, like I thought they're just going to drop him. And I thought that was going to be the movie. But he kept on like persisting and I was like Howard like Howard is going to die and so yeah I don't know I mean the ending was predictable but at the same time I feel like the ending was still very sad in the sense that like everyone was still kind of rooting for him because he just because everything had finally gone right. I mean, like the Celtics had finally won. He got like a million dollars. Like, you know, he was able to pay off all of his debts and then he just got shot. And yeah. <laughs> so you you, you kind of saw that ending coming because I remember the first time I saw it, I was I was definitely caught off guard. Really? Um, just Well, I think just in the sense of kind of that triumph that you kind of alluded to there of just, you know, the, the, the bet paid off, the parlay worked out, you know, and you thought may, maybe, maybe somehow this like insane, like a compulsive gambler would actually like pull it off. But of course, you know, maybe that this, this is the more realistic ending. Um, you know, I've also found that this film is uh, incredibly rewatchable, even though it is 
fairly stressful and paranoia filled and anxiety inducing. Um, how many times have you seen it? I mean, what about it to you in your eyes makes it so rewatchable? You want to go back and revisit Uncut Gems? I feel like it's rewatchable because of how interesting Howard is as like a main character and how just like there are so many different scenes that I could point out, like the one where he gets trapped in the trunk of his car at like his like kids recital or something like that or like just like Howard gets himself in so many different situations where like sometimes you're like oh like I forgot about that part you know but I feel like I can't really re-watch it too many times because it is so stressful so like I think I've seen it twice since like the theaters so I saw it in theaters and I saw it again on Netflix and like I don't know it's pretty, it is like very anxiety inducing, but I feel like that's kind of the beauty of it. And I feel like that's kind of what makes it rewatchable because you just forget so many things that happen because so many things happen in that movie. <laughs> there are two interesting aspects or bold decisions the Safdies made when making this film. First, we should probably mention how this is actually a period piece set in 2012. And, you know, they have like these iPhone 4s and like the weekend is like <laughs> not really huge yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's definitely people know him, but he's not quite popped off to the level he is now. I mean, what did you think of that choice to have a period piece in this like 2012, 2013 window? And how well do you think the Safdie brothers pulled that off of kind of setting it in this time period? Well, I think that what's kind of difficult about setting a movie that is so recent but still in the past is that, like, there isn't really a way to communicate that it is set in 2012 besides, you know, the obvious, like, October 2012 type of thing or, like, or, like showing, like, the iPhone 5s. But I think that the Safdie brothers really did a really good job um, in the sense that, like, they made a few different cultural references. I mean, as you mentioned, The weekend not really being a big thing yet and like not being a Super Bowl performer. <laughs> um, like, I think that the Safdie brothers really did a good job in the sense that because I mean, it's not like it's not like it, it was set in like the 90s, you know, like it's not like there are many cultural references that they could have made to like set it more in the 90s or even like the early 2000s. I mean, the 2010s just happened. Um, and like, I think that the Safdie brothers did a pretty good job of um, using that as kind of a point in the plot, I would say, because I mean, again, like KG was still playing for the Celtics and like, and I mean, that was like a whole plot point too. Um, and yeah. I think that they did a pretty good job in like making time a very important part of the plot, I would say. Then of course, there's the casting of this movie. We mentioned some of the bigger names up top, including some of the non-actors cast for the film. The Safdies also grabbed some people off the street in the Diamond District to add to the film's authenticity. But there's one guy in particular that we have to highlight, Adam Sandler. Uh, you know, I, I think most people would probably know him, and rightfully so, for his 
comedic work, you know, the Happy Gilmores, the Billy Madisons, the Water Boys of the world. But you know, he he has also shown. I mean, whether it's whether it's this, whether it's Punch Drunk Love, Rain Over Me. I mean, he's he's picked his moments. I feel like throughout his career to kind of show that, I guess that dramatic side that he has. And and you know, I, I think we've seen, you know, with, with Jim Carrey, Jack Black. I mean, I mean there there are Robin Williams, probably most famously. Um, you know, those comedians kind of going to that darker side. I'm um, just, whether it's Uncut Gems and Adam Sandler or Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, whoever it is, what do you think of how, you know, I feel like uh, comedians sometimes have that next gear to kind of play these quote unquote darker, more serious roles? I think that for me personally, because I had like never seen Punch Drunk Love. So like, I didn't know that Adam Sandler kind of had an in him to do like a serious role. Um, and so when I saw Uncut Gems and I saw Adam Sandler kind of taking on a much more serious role, um, I was really surprised because I really, as much as I love that guy, um, I didn't think that he really had it in him. Um, and like, I mean, I've seen like Dead Poets Society and um, I don't think I've seen Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, but like, I, I, I know that Jim Carrey and Robin Williams have had some like very critically acclaimed roles in um, some very dramatic movies. Um, but I think when I saw Adam Sandler in this type of role, it kind of put him in a different perspective for me as an actor. I mean, unfortunately, he's still doing those Netflix originals that are just terrible. <laughs> um, but like, but like, I think that it kind of proves that regardless of the way that you're viewed by most people in Hollywood, you can still have a very acclaimed role, if that makes sense. I read a few articles about Uncut Gems um, when I first saw it and Adam Sandler like really like worked hard to be able to portray a guy like Howard the way he did like he like went I get I think that he like went to like so many extremes like he went undercover to, like in the diamond district to study how like jeweler dealers or whatever like acted. I, I think Adam Sandler was just like so dedicated to this role and that's also something that really surprised me about like how dedicated he was. I mean like I said I never thought of Adam Sandler as a dramatic actor and I never thought that he would be able to play a guy like Howard so well but like he did and I think that it's Adam's Adam Sandler's portrayal of Howard that made the movie so great. Another aspect that added to the film was the world building. You know, they really build this uh, this sense of place, and you kind of have this sense of geography with it's the Diamond District, you know, Philadelphia, you know, Nino's Restaurant, you know, the auction place, the club where the weekend's performing at. I mean, I mean, what did you think? What did you think of that world building that the Safety Brothers did, and also kind of how how that helped to kind of, as you mentioned earlier, that sense of realism in this story. I think that, um, you know, starting with like the Diamond District and how they portrayed the Diamond District. Um, again, I don't really know anything about the Diamond District until this movie. Um, but I think that, you know, the way they kind of portrayed 
the way the Diamond District works um, was really interesting to me because, I mean, while, like I said, I don't think that, like, it is that intense all the time, um, I think that, like, I think that the Safdie brothers did a pretty good job of portraying, you know, what it would be like if this guy, Howard, were to live this type of life. Um, and I mean, the auction was, again, something that I feel was pretty realistic in the sense that, like, they had a lot of the different characters and the different actors, like, kind of setting the scene. And I also think that, you know, it wasn't the set that made it Diamond District-like. It was the characters and the actors that made it feel as real as it did. Uh, you know, and I, I think one of the enticing parts, but also, as you mentioned, potential flaw for some people is this paranoia and this anxiety that is throughout this film. And a lot of that comes from Howard's continuous uh, bad decision making. Um, you know, there's that line at the end, you know, everything I do is not going right, uh, where he's just crying and sobbing. It's incredible. Um, you know, this guy, you know, he rents out an apartment, cheating on his wife. You know, he keeps making these stupid bets. I mean, but you also empathize with him, right? I mean, I mean, what did you think of how this film kind of manipulates you into, you know, you realize this guy is kind of an idiot, but like you also are kind of rooting for him. Right. I mean, Howard makes like the worst decisions he could make ever. I mean, like, and he never learns from any of his mistakes. And he also just is always trying to one up the last thing that he kind of did, I guess. Um, and like, I feel like it is kind of frustrating that they made a character this unlucky. But I mean, I think that the audience kind of empathizes with him because they just want to see him succeed. And like the fact that Howard, like I said, gets himself into like such bad situations and like he makes all of the wrong decisions. Um, I mean, you just want to see him, you know, get rid of the stuck gambling problem. Um, you want to see him actually have like a non-stressful life. I mean, like you want to see him win a million dollars and be able to pay off his debt and not have to deal with these scary guys who want to kill him every moment. I mean, there are so many ways that the Safdie brothers kind of portrayed Howard that, I mean, on paper would make him seem like the perfect villain. But I think that he is probably like perfect protagonist in a way because like I mean I think that the way that they wrote him the audience like I said just wants to see him succeed they want to see something go his way <laughs> and I mean something did go his way at the end but you know he did die so <laughs> Uh, you know, th then there's kind of the flip, the flip side of that, you know, I, I feel like a lot of Howard's persona, especially just even how he dresses, right, you know, saying I had to wear like fake teeth for this, you know, he's got the glasses, he's got the $500 shirts, he's got the watches, he's got all this thing, he's got a lot of this, it's like a lot of his persona is kind of fake, and he's kind of putting on this thing. Um, how did you feel like they kind of played it kind of the flip side the darker side of Howard and how his ego and his compulsive gambling and this bad decision making 
was ruining not only his life, but also his children's lives, his coworkers' lives. You know, how do, how do you feel like his vices were kind of being taken on, taken out on his uh, relationships? So, I mean, there's a scene that kind of sticks out to me the most, which is when Howard gets the black opal in the mail, like in the fish or whatever. And um, one of his employees comes into his office and he's like talking and complaining about this one guy that like grabs him by the shirt and like, you know, like, I don't know, like assaulted him basically. And Howard just like ignored it because he was just living in his own little world. And then... I mean, the sound kind of like faded to like kind of get into Howard's brain, I guess. Um, and then he was like, holy shit, I'm gonna, <laughs> like, he was like, holy shit, I'm gonna come. And like, I mean, I think that that scene in itself shows how, how Howard only really cares about himself in the end and like how he really only cares about how much money he can make for said whatever you know gambling issue he's in and like he's just so oblivious to all of the issues around him and like he just wants to succeed and he wants like the good ending to come (laughs) and like i mean i think that he he prioritizes money and profits over literally everything and everyone else in his life and that's Something I think that the Safdie brothers tried to make a main point in like the theme because I mean, ultimately that whole attitude of Howard is what led him to like dying. Um, And that's, and I mean, I think that that whole attitude that Howard has about just wanting to make more money, wanting to profit off of like everything that he can. um, I mean, it led to a lot of the bad things that were major plot points in the movie. And I feel like kind of part of that, you know, as he's kind of singularly focused, you know, he gets his own family wrapped up in this, right? You know, he gets Gooey to to bet against, uh, or to, I guess, in the auction, you know, to go against Kevin Garnett. And, you know, he even, he gets in that uh, insane uh, fight with The weekend, you know, because he's jealous of Julia <laughs> and all this stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just curious, and especially particularly with the fight with the weekend, because I just think that is an incredible, uh, incredible moment. But um, what, did, what did you think of how Howard's, uh, you know, jealousy and also how he kind of got his family directly involved in this nonsense? So I think that the main thing that kind of sticks out to me when you mentioned like him getting his family involved is when um, they like have to stop at his apartment or something his like second home and like he doesn't want his kid to go up there because (laughs) I think that like his mistress is probably up there or something and um and like his kid like really needs to pee or something it's like on the way to this recital and like it's just so interesting how he kind of I don't want to say that he is a terrible father Um, because I think that he has some redeeming qualities, (laughs) um, but I mean, overall, like his, I mean, I think it stems back to the greed and the fact that Howard just wants to make some money. And I mean, that's kind of the main issue for a lot of the things that happen to Howard. (laughs) Um, and I mean, his gambling problem is like a main issue of 
the entire movie. And I mean, I think that it kind of shows that, I mean, his marriage is falling apart and like his kid, he's like barely even in his kids' lives. And I mean, even with like Julia Fox, like that whole relationship is falling apart because of his tendencies to just like put money over any of any and all of his relationships. And the part with The weekend, like, to me, to me, if I'm being honest, like, when I saw The weekend, I was like, wow, like, they got The weekend. Um, but I mean, I don't, the part with The weekend was kind of like, when he, like, got in that fight at the club, like, I was just like, Howard, come on. Like, it just that was like another way to just like make me feel bad for him because he he didn't know what he was doing with the weekend and like it's not like he would be able to win a fight with the weekend and all of his like squad around him i mean it just made me feel really bad for him but in the end i think that his relationship with like his family and the way he treats julia fox's character is kind of overlooked in the sense that the audience still likes him. I mean, if if this was like any other guy who one, was cheating on his wife with a much younger woman and two, treated that much younger woman as the way Howard treated Julia Fox's character, like I feel like people would definitely think that he's a pretty big dick, but like, Howard is just such a likable character <laughs> for some reason and like I don't but I don't know he just has so many flaws but like so many things just make the audience want to see him succeed. Um you mentioned he does have some redeeming qualities as a father. What what would some <laughs> of those be? Um I don't I think that like the scene of him like at Passover like <laughs> He's like kind of like a fun guy. Like he um and I mean I think that he I don't know. He's like not really in his kids' lives at all. But like <laughs> when he is, when he is, he's like a good guy. And like you see that like he actually cares for his kids and he actually like wants to see his kids succeed, but like you also see that he is not present ever. <laughs> so it, it's a toss-up as tatum and i mentioned earlier this does not end well for howard as he finally hits on the three-way parlay on game seven of the eastern conference semifinals paying out to a cool 1.2 million howard gets shot in the face never to see a dime it's the third major bet he makes in the film so i had to ask would you say you have a better or worse understanding of sports betting after watching this movie? See, I I don't I don't know how good Howard is at, at betting. I don't know how good he is at gambling because I don't know anything about that. Um, but I mean, I I definitely didn't think that people would bet a million dollars on a Celtics game. Um, but I guess maybe they do. I don't know. I mean. <laughs> I I don't know. Howard, I feel like Howard is just not a good gambler. And if I'm going to take anything away from it is to not be like Howard when gambling on sports. <laughs> it's probably best not to take any advice on anything from Howard. 
What I will say though, is that this film is definitely worth checking out because of the insanity, not in spite of it. I think Uncut Gems is a really unique movie. Um, and like, really, I've never seen a movie like it before. I mean, the like I said, the chaos is just like insane. Um, but I mean, also it's some, it's the, what it really is mainly about is it's about this black opal and it's about the diamond district in New York. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people don't really know about either, because I mean, the diamond district, I really only know about the diamond district because of uncut gems. I mean, and I feel like that's maybe how a lot of other people feel too. Um, but overall, my pitch to see Uncut Gems, if you haven't already, is to see Adam Sandler portray such a unique character in such a unique way that like, he really did deserve an Oscar nod for it, but he didn't get it, so. For our final film, we'll look at Captain America going heel, and James Bond channeling a mix of Foghorn Leghorn and Colonel Sanders. My name is Rachel Gaylor, and my favorite movie is Knives Out. Rachel Gaylor, a KU alum who's working on her master's at Northwestern, says she's more of a TV person because of the ability to develop characters further in the episodic format. But I do love movies because it is kind of an escape and a way to see storytelling done in a different way because doing storytelling in like... 10 episodes or 24 is different than two hours. So people putting a good story with character development and everything in two hours and making it good whenever it has those elements, I think that's something really special. Is there anything about the, uh, the mystery or the whodunit model that kind, of, that kind of draws you in in particular, or is it more just Knives Out? I think it was more, I mean, I, I do like mystery I like mystery novels and mystery stuff, but I think what initially drew me in is the the cast because I really like a lot of the cast. And it felt very familiar, the mystery, the kind of the model of it. When I was, I rewatched it this weekend just to prepare for this. And like, it felt familiar, but it also had twists and turns that I wasn't expecting. So I think if a mystery can do that and have kind of twists, but not like just shock, just for the sake of having shock, I think that's hard to do, and I think Knives Out did it really well. And speaking of Knives Out... It might be more recency bias, but it's been my favorite film of late. I rewatched it. I've watched it a few times. Um, I watched it when Christopher Plummer died earlier this year because I just, you know, was in the mood to see it. And then when I was rewatching it, I just found all the elements that I loved about it when I first saw it with the music and the cinematography and the composition. So I think for me as of late, that's been the film where I think of what film do I want to watch that'll make me sit there, not be on my phone and not think about other things for however long it is. From 2019, Knives Out, written and directed by Ryan Johnson, follows the dysfunctional Thromby family in wake of patriarch Harlan Thromby's death. Harlan, played by the late Christopher Plummer, has mysteriously died on the night of his 86th birthday, and a trio of detectives are called to figure out what happened. Most notably, there's Detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, 
who suspects foul play and dives deeper into the family history to find out the cause of death and how the housekeeper Marta, played by Ana de Armas, is connected. There's plenty of misdirects, shouting matches, and bad faith as the Thromby clan simultaneously mourns a death in the family while also fighting over the contents of Harlan's will. Nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the 2020 Oscars, the film also features Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Lakeith Stanfield, Tony Collette, and Michael Shannon. Do you remember that first experience of watching this? I mean, did you see it in theaters? Did you see it at home first? What, what were the kind of those, some of those feelings you remember um, from watching Knives Out for the first time? I remember exactly where I was. I was in Sacramento doing my music therapy internship. I went to the movie by myself because I'd been excited to see it and I got an early access to it. So I watched it the week before it came out. And I remember being in the theater when people went to theaters um, and everyone there was so into the film. Like everyone, we laughed at all the same parts. We like were kind of shouting at all different parts and just the ending. So whenever like uh, Chris Evans was like thrown up on and everything, everyone just like clapped so hard the, that we got him. And so I remember that collective experience was so much fun. And then a couple weeks later, my mom came when we were getting ready to leave and we saw it together and she loved it. And we don't really like similar movies, but this was one movie that we collectively loved together. How did, how does that um, affect your enjoyment of it? The fact that you said like your mom and you maybe don't always click on movies, but this one in particular, you did click. How does that kind of, affect your enjoyment of Knives Out? I think it just brings a whole nother love and understanding to it because I don't have to watch it by myself. If I want to watch it with my mom or my dad, we can watch it together. And then I have that experience with them. But if I want to watch it alone, it's okay. But then we can also, we've talked about it too, just randomly coming up. My mom will remind me of a scene in the movie and she, even she thinks about it, you know, often. And she's not a big movie person either. You know, I think I think this movie, even though it does have a, like a quote unquote like twists and turns or whatever, I, I found that it is pr- pretty easy to revisit. Um, for you, what about Knives Out make it so rewatchable um, that you want to kind of keep going back and revisit this? I think it's also just really funny, especially the beginning part of the scenes where um, they're interviewing all the family members and the intercut um, between in the contrast between some of the responses and the running joke throughout like of them they talk about how great marta is anna darmas's character but they don't know where she's actually from so they keep getting it wrong like guatemala uruguay um, ecuador and so just like little things throughout the movie that are so funny to me and daniel craig's performance i think is it's hilarious because i've seen him as james bond but this is just a whole different kind of character As Rachel mentioned there, the film features several standout performances, but there are three that I want to touch on in particular. First up, we have to go back to Ana de Armas as Marta. I think it's just the fact that you could tell how much her character was such a good person and like a genuinely good person and just wanted like the best for people. And even that was enough for some of the family members. It doesn't matter that she was a great person. doesn't matter that she worked hard um, because she wasn't a member of the family. She was kind of uh, outcasted by them. 
and still she kept her good nature. And as they said at the end, um, even though she might have been caught, she still helped Fran when she when Fran was like dying and everything. And so just it could be so easy to make her kind of turn into one of the family members and be manipulative and just mean, but they kept her throughout being nice. And I think Anadarmas played that so well. But then at the end, whenever she's watching over the family and has the mug, you think like, so was she playing us the whole time or is she still great? And every time I watch it, I have a different opinion of that ending. What's your opinion of the ending right now? Um, When I saw it, I was just like, I looked at the scene and she's, you know, holding the mug and it says my house, my rules. And she's looking over the family from above and they've like looked at her from figuratively above the whole time. So I think it's more just like her coming full circle to being it. But um, one time when I watched my mom, my mom kind of convinced me that I was like, she was playing the family the whole time just because of her little like wry smile. But I think I'm right. And that she was just, it was just kind of showing where she, how she's elevated above them now. Another outcast, if you will, of this film in this kind of rogues gallery is um, Hugh Drysdale, you know, better known as Ransom uh, by Chris Evans. Certainly against type, I would say, especially uh, considering yeah. he's, you know, known to the masses as Captain America. I, I, I find some kind of funny similarities between his character in uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world uh, mm-hmm. in this, uh, Lucas Lee in that but kind of as the, the shithead, like kind of uh, bad in, in this. But, um, you know, he's, he's electric. You know, I know, I know a lot of people kind of made a lot, big deal about his sweaters in this film. I'm just curious what you thought of Chris Evans uh, as Ransom. I thought he was great. And I think the thing with Captain America kind of helped his character, the fact that it was him all along come a little, more, little bit more shocking because, he I mean, he was an asshole. And we all realize that whenever... But then you thought maybe he actually genuinely wants to help Marta. And then you find out at the end, like, no, he just, he wants the money. Um, so I loved Chris Evans' performances. I mean, I wasn't, I'm not as obsessed with the sweaters as other people are. But I mean, he looks, he looked great in the sweaters. He looks good and everything. But I think having him be Steve Rogers helped me not see that coming as much. Yeah, I, I kind of hope he honestly plays more villain types um, oh, yeah. as he, as he kind of transitions past Endgame and so on. Um, but you brought it up, and I have to bring it back just real briefly. Uh, Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, which, by the way, the names in this film are incredible. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. Harlan Thromby, Benoit Blanc, all those. Um, I mean, Ransom. I mean, just, Ransom? You know, there's the bit, of course, about the CSI, KFC, the Foghorn Leghorn bit, but just the commitment from Daniel Craig in this movie mm-hmm. to that, to that accent and just taking it very seriously. I mean, again, just what did you think of his, again, playing a little bit against type, you know, the whole James Bond thing, but also just like being like the straight man and the comedic relief at the same time. Oh yeah. I, I think like it's, he was so committed to being Benoit Blanc that it was hilarious. And so I think that really also helped elevate the film since he's a central figure of it too and I always I love whenever he was in the beginning of the movie when they're in the scene where he's in the back like listening to it and keeps playing the piano and then Don Johnson's like I'm gonna say like who the fuck is that guy and he's just you know and his southern accent is I mean it's very like kind of stereotypical southern accent but it's so good and he does it so well and he stands out I think as one of the best characters he's ever played 
He's also constantly chewing up scenery as Benoit Blanc, especially with how he reconstructs crime scenes and looks at every nook and cranny of the Thromby estate. Uh, Lakeith Stanford's character at one point says, you know, look around. I mean, the guy practically lived in a clue board. What did you think of kind of this, this Thromby estate and kind of all the, all the nooks and crannies, you know, the trick windows, the different entrances? I mean, what did you think of kind of the setup of this central location? I definitely thought it was the perfect location. I Well, the house, I loved the exterior of the house and like the shots, the wide shots they have of just showing like the, you know, the forest and all the other houses. You could definitely, it sets the scene to the fact that this is a kind of a state. And I just, I really loved all the different rooms, but the fact that like they had the creaky stairs and they had the part of the fence that fell off because it broke. And so it was seemed like a house that would actually exist. It wasn't just your perfect, well-built house. It was an old one and it showed the age of it too. And then I love the the, the throne of knives, of course. Oh, of course. I mean, that, that's, just a, that's just a great, uh, great little addition there. But I'm just curious, you know, this film in a lot of ways um, is preposterous. You know, obviously, like larger than life characters, crazy names, crazy antics going on. I mean, think, yeah. I think even at one point, Benoit says, like, you're, you're guilty of um, some amateur theatrics or something like that. I'm just yeah. curious, how do you, do you feel like that kind of helps, you know, that the house, as you mentioned, it kind of helps ground it a little bit in, in realism as opposed to kind of all these other things are flying around. Do you feel like that kind of helps the film in a way? Yeah, I think so. And the fact that they didn't film it in kind of like a soundstage at least they film like exterior shots outside and you can tell it kind of pulls it back to it being a film and like you're in the place rather than them just being inside the whole time and not seeing exterior shots. And so that it kind of translates to seeing Marta's place and we see, you know, our apartment building outside. We see other apartments there driving through town. We see other like shops and stores. So it doesn't make it an isolated place. And I feel like it helps make the universe a little more real and I think you, like you said, it does ground it a bit because everyone is a little larger than life in it. But I mean, even though the house, like the interior is kind of larger than life, it still helps with making it feel like a real thing. Oh, and you know, we, we kind of talked a little bit earlier about how uh, Marta is kind of, you know, the central figure of this, but especially in the opening scene, you know, when the, when the cops are, or the detectives are kind of interviewing everybody, I feel like perspective plays a huge role in this mm-hmm. film about what's what's the truth or a version of the truth is. Um, what did you think of how perspective was used in this film and especially how uh, that kind of played into the motives of some characters, you know, how, whether how they displayed grief, how they maybe somebody wanted a cut of the will, you know, I'm yeah. just curious what you thought of all that. I, lo- I liked how they showed what they said and then showed like the actual scene of it too, because that, I feel like that established like who who these characters are. So how like Don Johnson's character, for example, described his conversation versus us saying that he was having an affair and Thromby was gonna like let people, let him know. And so I think it helped a lot establish like who we can believe, who can we trust, but they all kind of told the truth, but just seeing what parts they left out of the truth to tell the police, I think was very interesting and very telling, but all of them kind of, they didn't really seem to grieve as we might expect. Like there were no, not really any tears there. They were just kind of matter of fact, because I think they were more annoyed about the fact that they had to come back and talk about it. Um, and they were just waiting for the will to be read. And so they got through like the initial grief stage. And now when we're interviewing them, it's just like, okay, this again, like we already talked about it. He's dead. Like it's sad, whatever. 
um, but trying to move on from it. Would you say that um, not not counting the detectives or anything, or, or maybe even not Marta either, but do you think anybody in the Thromby clan could be considered a uh, wholesome or a, a good person entirely? Probably the closest. Well, I think like the grandmother or whatever, because she just like was chilling there. But Catherine Langford's character probably was the most redeemable at first. But then when she told her family about Marta's, you know, mom being undocumented, that just like that really, I think, went against her. The fact that she when it came down to it, she took her family side rather than doing the right thing. So if we had to pick a character that was the most redeemable, it would be her. But other than that, like they all got what they deserved. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads me to our next point of just, um, you know, I feel like self-sufficiency and kind of protecting a legacy plays a lot um, into this, you know, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Linda, you know, she kind of flaunts that she, you know, she built her business from the ground yeah. up. And, you know, that's the whole thing with Walt is that, you know, why he cut him off at the publishing company, he wants him to build his own thing. I'm just curious what you thought of that element of this and how Harlan really wanted uh, these people to kind of, you know, build their own thing instead of, you know, just continue to leech off him. Yeah, I think especially, you know, Harlan, as he was getting older and as he saw and got to know Marta and saw the goodness that she had and how, you know, she came from nothing and was able to have this life for herself. I think that really opened his eyes to, oh my God, my children are kind of the worst because we've just like guided them with our money and our name throughout their entire lives. So I think for him to, you know, cut them off financially and then not have give Wilt his company because he wanted to, you know, Netflix videos and uh, TV show adaptations of Harlan's books and everything and trusting Marta that she would do the right thing with all those things. I think if it wasn't for her, and that relationship, I don't think he, I mean, I don't know anything prior to the movie, but from what I got, it's that that relationship is what spawned this newfound, like he, he now finally opened his eyes to realize who his kids actually were. Uh, definitely. And, and I feel like it also plays into a lot of these people being very insecure, you know, whether about their financial status or social status, anything. Um, and, and a lot of them are putting up a front, right? You know, and it, there's yeah. a lot of misdirects in this film. And I'm just curious, what you, what did you think of kind of some of those misdirects and how these people were putting up a front and even having that, you know, that plot device, if you will, of Marta really being the only one that can truly has a lie detector with the fact that she <laughs> throws up if she lies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think they all like, you know, especially the characters all did well to put up the front. I love Tony Collette's character and her uh, like skincare product company. I assume they did that because of Gwyneth Paltrow's goop company. Um, and so I just love how she used kind of like that success to, you know, make an impression on them. Cause the one detective knew who she or the state trooper knew who she was and everything. Um, but then when it came down to her getting cut off from the money, like all that went away and it like didn't matter that she had the skincare company. It doesn't matter. She was social media presence. She was losing like the one thing she counted on, which was Harlan's money, even though she got it in mischievous ways. And so seeing them in those scenes where he's cutting them off and seeing like their kind of armor crack and who they are really underneath and just how much they actually care about the material things they have. Um, I think that was very interesting, but I just also love Tony Collette so much. 
I'm, I'm really glad you brought her up because there's a line that she says near the beginning that was, you know, using the trailer for this and everybody was laughing about it. You know, I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you, <laughs> yeah, uh, which is which is a great line in itself. But there there is a very, you know, I feel like there's a very intention, uh, intentional you know aspect of this film to keep it very modern. And, and it's yeah. very self-aware of that. This is taking place in 2018 or 19 or whenever it is. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's Catherine Langford's characters vaping, you know, there's smartphones everywhere. There's, you know, you know alt-right language with the kid. Exactly. The whole yeah. alt-right troll, you know, the, the undue influence and Slayer rule. Did you just Google that? Like that whole thing. <laughs> I'm just curious what you thought of Ryan Johnson's choice to kind of make this film very self-aware and make sure the audience knows and that the movie knows that this is a very like modern telling of this story. Yeah, I think all those things helped because when you look at like the house, when you look at the setting and even the style, like a murder mystery, it all feels very old and very like a relic. But then when you bring in the fact that she's vaping and talking about going to a neoliberal college or um, tweeting it, like saw a tweet about a New Yorker article, I think it just, it kept reminding me like, okay, this is where we're at because if they didn't have those things, I could think of as a viewer, it could get confusing as to where exactly in time we are, especially when that security system um, is very old and very grainy. Uh, and just the house, again, is another character in the story, just a relic. But I, the tweet about the New Yorker article still makes me laugh to this day. And I just, I really liked all how they didn't show us where we were. They just like kind of told us through the dialogue where we were. Uh, and, you know, kind of with the alt-right troll thing, you know, there are some very uh, intriguing political debates yeah. in this film and, you know, subtext and then just straight up text in a lot yeah. of ways, especially surrounding immigration and Marta's place. You brought it up the whole, oh, she's from Paraguay. No, she's from Brazil. No, she's from yeah. whatever other South American country. They don't really know. Um you know, they have that that's one debate of, you know, don't make this a race thing. And, you know, they got to do it the right way. You know, yeah. Being, Trumpian in a lot of respects um what did you think of that you know the political elements of this film and how a lot of it especially surrounding the immigration topic I think it just kind of showed I mean this is my take from it and I will admit I come from a very non-Trump person person like perspective so it just showed me that like for some people it doesn't matter who they are they will never believe that uh, escaping their own country and like the fight to get here is worth it. They just think that it's easy. Just if you really want to be here so bad, you can do it the right way, even though the right way is so much more complicated than anyone who is born here can realize. So for me, it just showed that like, there will always be that divide, I think, between people who are just very anti-immigrants, especially anti-immigrants that aren't white. And other people who, you know, try to be, you know, accepting towards Marta. But even then, when that was before she got the money, then as soon as she gets the inheritance, everyone loses their shit and is like, uses the fact that her mom's an illegal immigrant against her. And so it just shows that, you know, you can put on this front of, oh, yeah, we're accepting, we're loving. But until you're actually affected by a certain aspect then you might have a different opinion no definitely that's a, i mean that, that's a great point and and i feel like 
even, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, I feel like there's definitely this palpable sense of entitlement, you know, even with like ransom, because, yeah. you know, ransom, he, he, you know, immediately comes in, you know, tells all his family to eat shit and all this stuff. <laughs> and it feels like he's kind of this, and they even call him the black sheep of the family at one point. But even at the end of the day, his whole scheme was to still get his cut of the inheritance. So I'm just curious what you thought of how, like, how shallow and how like entitled all these people are, even if they come across well-meaning and, you know, respect and like thinking of Marta as a part of the family until, like you said, the money changes hands. Yeah. And even when they asked, like talked about the funeral, like I voted that you should be here and everyone said they voted she should go to the funeral, but she wasn't invited. So I'm like, obviously no one voted for her to be there. Um, but I think especially Ransom and, you know, he seemed, he walked in, you're like, oh God, this is, you know, he's an arrogant guy. And then when he like saves Marta from the whole family, um, that's like, you think, oh, is he well-intentioned? And then at the diner scene, he offers to help her if he gets his cut of the money. And then his whole plan is just like make her seem guilty. So it's just, you keep thinking maybe he's, has some well intentions, but at the end of the day, it's it has no well intention. And he knew all along that Marta was, uh, you know, responsible, quote unquote, for his, for Throbbing's death, even though she wasn't, we find out later. So it's just, I think it, it's very accurate just to show that money changes everything for everyone. Whether we like it or not, when you add that amount of money into the equation, things are going to change and you can do your best to try and stay humble and stay grounded. But if you don't have a environment and people around you to keep you grounded and humble, I think that is definitely, um, you will become the thrombies basically. But there's a choice in this movie, you know, as they kind of are showing their work in a way, you know, reconstructing the crime scene, trying to figure this out. About 38, you know, 40 minutes into this film, you know, we still have a, over an hour left of runtime. Ryan Johnson chooses to show us how Harlan dies. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the whole label switching thing is revealed later, but, you know, pretty early on, we kind of see how Harlan was killed. Uh, I'm just curious what you thought of that choice and how they kind of, again, as Benoit Blanc would say, started to unspin the web. Yeah, I think it, when I first saw it, I was kind of shocked that that's, they showed it that early and that we knew like bef- over like less than halfway through the movie, this is actually what happened. And so then it was, I think after that, just kind of you see Marta in a different light, see how she's trying to keep quiet and like keep herself, you know, able just like in the clear. And I don't think at that point she was worried about the money. I think she was just worried about not getting in trouble. Um, but then we see kind of like the hijinks she goes through. Like when they're reconstructing this crime scene, she accidentally, I mean, and she doesn't accidentally, she does the thing with the camera tape and then she walks through the mud and then walks back, even though Benoit Blanc's like, don't walk through it. Cause there's footsteps. She's like, Oh, what, what? And then throws away the broken part of the fence to the dog. Um, so she's like, shows that she's trying to cover up her tracks a little bit, but not because it's intentional, but just because in the moment she's kind of panicking and then we learn later, of course, that she's actually not responsible, just responsible for some theatrics, as Benoit Blanc puts it. Definitely. And I'm just curious, what, what did you think of that, the, the final scene in this, you know, when we, when we kind of realized what was actually going on and how Ransom, you know, ended up killing Fran 
and how the whole the whole fake knife bit and all that and just kind of figuring out the uh the whole of this donut inside a donut and all and all that yeah um i really liked how they how it was marta how the bios were switched labels but she knew because i worked in, i did my internship in a hospital so i worked with a lot of nurses and they know their shit Okay, so Marta being such a good nurse that she recognizes even the smallest difference in the color of the liquid of morphine and whichever other drug it was, I can't remember. But just that fact, I like how they included it because it kind of showed me like, okay, they don't just think she's some you know nurse that'll just read the label because most of them, they don't actually read the labels of what they're doing. They know exactly what it looks like. So for me, that was one thing kind of that I enjoyed the fact that it was she wasn't responsible for her death. And then showing Fran, like the first time I watched it, when she says like, you did this, um, I was like, what? Like, no, like Fran, come on. But then whenever she realized it was Hugh did this, cause the, he has the help call him Hugh. That was, so when I've rewatched it since then, I've been able to tell, like she's saying Hugh did this. But when you're watching it the first time and you don't know, you just think she's saying you and trying to struggle to say it and then at the end after she like throws up on him he grabs the knife and just the whole slow motion sequencing and then the knife goes in at first I couldn't tell that it was a fake knife because it plunges into her chest but then when he pulls it out and like keeps trying to do it it's so funny and I think that was like one of the perfect ways to end it because because we keep seeing the throne of knives the entire movie and for it to actually come into play at the end I think was a great payoff for um, the people watching it. And for people who want to watch Knives Out, it's right there on Amazon Prime. So there's really no reason to not check this one out. It's a funny murder mystery. It has hot people in it, but it's also has a great payoff at the end. That's probably not good. I'm not very good at describing things and selling them. (laughs) I just tell people to trust me. So trust me. Coming up next on the Formative Films Project, we'll look at some films that qualify as dudes rock cinema. And The Big Lebowski is just one movie that is um, almost endlessly rewarding. Uh, you can watch it uh, anytime, um, regardless of your mood. It's a it's a fun movie, but it also um, it's not just like you know a dumb stoner comedy. Although you can still watch it and just have fun, and you know along for the ride but it, but it is meaningful too and it has you know interesting insights and things to say uh so it's really the full package in that sense and i thought nah, you know tombstone's one that like it's one of my favorite movies it's right up there I can quote every line of it probably if i watched it with you right now i would annoy the hell out of you and i just got me thinking about why and some of the things that the movie does that i think make it stand apart if i had to throw that out, i watched it at least once a year so that's part of it is my familiarity with it but I also think that it threads this incredible needle. If you were to do like an X, Y axis of influence and enjoyment, I think it's in its own zip code. Like I can't think of many popcorn movies just that are such Hollywood blockbuster type films that have influenced as many movies as Die Hard eventually ended up doing. 